This is VOCM Open Line. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. The biggest conversation in Newfoundland and Labrador starts now. Here's VOCM Open Line host Patty Daly. Nope. Nope. It's the substitute today. No, Patty. Patty is off today. Good morning, everybody. Tim Powers, happy to be here uh, with you on this uh, storm day. I, well, not really storm day, storm transition day uh, in uh, Newfoundland and Labrador. Almost a, a storm day here. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Look, before I get into everything else and get into the uh, the preamble and all of all of that, let me add my voice uh, if you don't mind, to uh, paying tribute to Vince Gallant. I didn't know Vince super well, but I, of course, had the opportunity to uh, to meet him over the years at VOCM. And what a true honor it was for, for many of us of a certain age. Vince Gallant, uh, one or two others, were the voices that we trusted in Newfoundland and Labrador to give us the straight goods about what was happening uh, in our province and around the world. We'd wake up with Vince, we'd hear him throughout the day, and we'd do it all again the next day. Uh, he did his job with excellence, with poise, with professionalism, wonderful radio voice. And when I first came to VOCM, uh, I saw, if you don't mind me, I'm going to call Mr. Gallant sitting there and uh, just a gentle, unassuming uh, person in your physical presence. But this was the giant Vince Gallant. And it truly is a loss uh, when you lose somebody like Vince Gallant. Yes, he hadn't been on the air since 2019. But here was the gentleman, and I would always, uh, always love to see this, working in his 80s, not because he had to but because he loved doing it. And uh, I saw a great tribute from his old colleague uh, and friend of mine, Fred Hutton, uh, talking about how when Fred was the news director at VOCM, and I'm sure Greg Smith experienced this as well, and Aiden Hibbs and Kerry Hodder and many of the other people who've been in that chair, uh, Vince would put his hand up to work on weekends or holidays so that people with young families could spend the time together. And that's not an easy shift, let me tell you. That's coming in 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning, uh, reading the news, making sure you in Newfoundland and Labrador know what's happening. And here was this man who just loved it, loved it, loved it. In this day and age, you don't often get to see or meet people who loved what they did and Vince Gallant certainly did that and as you've heard through the tributes I was listening to um, Ben and Jerry Lynn this morning playing some of the callbacks talkbacks you just got the sense of how he touched everyone so just adding my voice to it and as I say uh, I've been lucky in my life to meet some uh, incredible people in this business but not all of them necessarily possessed the humility and the uh, down-to-earthiness that Vince Gallant did for the status that he had had achieved and if uh, as was reported this morning on open line or uh, on our news program if uh, if they do do a walk of fame in Newfoundland and Labrador he ought to be one of the first people on it given uh, given the import he had to this province and to so many people and the mentor 
mentorship role he played. So thank you for allowing me to do that. And, of course, our lines are open this morning. If you want to talk about Vince and how he impacted you, if you want to talk about how things have changed since uh, since Vince stepped back in, in news coverage, anything related to that, uh, let's, let's chat about that this morning. Now, I have to tell you, and Vince Gallant would have appreciated that. As, as many of you know, when I do this show, I often drop my son off um, early with his mom so uh, she can kindly get him off to school so I can do this. And I was coming back after dropping him off this morning. <laughs> and uh, what did I see? It was the most wonderful sight. I'd seen a number of runners go by. And there was this one runner who had stopped to adhere to the traffic rules. And it was at a major intersection here. And she was dancing up a storm without a care in the world. I don't know if she was listening to eyes that buy or he eyes that buy or heave away or whatever. The d- dirty old rum's got a hold on me. Want to make sure I sprink- sprinkle all those musical uh, numbers around to the right artist. But she was loving it. I don't know if it's because it's Friday or it's a long weekend here in Ontario or she survived the, the snowstorm, but oh, she inspired me. So I'm going to try and dance around like her today and have some fun with you and, and make sure that we get to some of the serious topics of the day. And I know the weather's one of them, but I have to tell you, I still find it so funny sitting here in Ontario. Now, albeit I'm not in Toronto and the jokes of calling out the military are, are still pretty regular for those people who do live in Toronto every time it snows, but I have to haul up a CTV News headline here from last night, and it says, First snowstorm in weeks, blankets Ottawa on Thursday night. Now, do you want to know what was in that snowstorm? Oh, look, I hit the little pop-up ad. Five centimeters of snow. Seven centimeters of snow. Nothing, nothing, nothing. We all survived, but it is funny how people get themselves in a pickle. The city's going to shut down. What can we do? They know nothing of what everybody at home has gone through, and I know it's been a tough couple of days. Everybody in Nova Scotia has gone through. A very good friend in Sydney, her mom, who shares the same birthday as my mother, same age. They'll both be a certain age. I won't say it because I'm going home in a couple of weeks, so I still want to be led in the door, so I won't tell you how old my mother's going to be, but um, this lady who shares the birthday with my mom, 153 centimeters, not five, not seven, and she was not pulsed because Sydney, Cape Breton, much like Newfoundland and Labrador, the neighbors, the friends, they helped. The neighbor came and shoveled her out. A friend, uh, one of her children, made sure she was uh, was was fed and, and nurtured and all of those things. Look, <laughs> I don't want to cause a national strife this morning, but I think we know more about snow in Atlantic Canada than they do up here. And if you've got any good snow stories this morning, it's a Friday. Bring them on. Let's hear them. The best one I recall relating to my mother's when snowmageddon hit now that was snow remember that uh what's that three four years ago now snowmageddon hit behind my mother's home lives a wonderful cousin of mine and her partner they shimmied down on their belly um because their backyard touches ours or sorry our backyard touches their their backyard shimmied down on their bellies to shovel my mother out to make sure she was all right and she's got some great pictures of them coming down the snow five to seven centimeters is not a lot of snow anyway i think i've beat the snow beaten i've I've shoveled the snow away and we uh we can move on to something else now there's a lot a lot of interesting things happening out there a lot of traction in the news i heard jerry earl read our online news 
website uh, talking about the P3 project that the provincial government is going to embrace in 2025, I believe it is, for the dividing of the Trans-Canada Highway. Now, Gerald's doing his job. I understand he's speaking up for his members and concerned about what this could mean and privatization creep, I believe Jerry describes it as. I, I look, I get that. But, again, it's like healthcare. The debate... There's already private service. I'm the son of a contractor who built roads from one end of Newfoundland to the end of to the tip of Labrador. The the roads already are mostly 99% of the time I think built by private contractors who put a ton of money into the community. The difference, of course, and Jerry would point that out, and he's welcome to call, is that this the highway would be operated, and there, this happens in other parts of the country uh, and the world, sometimes with success, sometimes not with success. But the, op, the, the highway, as I understand it, would be operated by uh, a private consortium. Uh, so that is a little bit different, to be fair, and maintenance of that highway would likely fall to whoever the private consortium operator chooses to maintain the highway. So yes, that would have an impact on some of uh, the people Jerry represents, I, and I get that. But again, we already have private snow clearing in Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, or contracted out snow clearing. I'm using the term private to say the public dollars are being used to employ somebody to do that work. But do you really get wound up about this if you're not a member of NAEP? If you are a member of NAEP, of course, you can call as well, too. But, you know, is this something to get overly concerned about? I mean, there will be lots of people, not to diminish anybody personally, who would say, well, we could still do a hell of a lot better job with snow clearing if and, and other road maintenance and work if we um, if we had private companies doing it. There are others who will say maybe these the people who Jerry represents or the provincial government has on, uh, on uh, the payroll for them can be deployed elsewhere. I am trying to care about this. I am trying to get worked up about this, but I can't. I don't know if that was good or bad, but if you want to talk about it, please give us a call. It seems to be getting some attention in the news, as is this one, as we head into um, the middle of winter. I think we're officially in the middle of winter. The Canadian Mental Health Association has been talking about this for a while, and in Newfoundland and Labrador, they're now doing a four-day week. And they argue, I can see the validity in the argument that um, they're more their employees are more productive, people are happier, and their health is better, which is always so very important. Where are you on four-day weeks? Um, it, it, look, I, I'm of two minds on it. I think if it works for you and it can work for your employer and employee alike, great, as long as you're still able to serve the people you need to serve, so you'd have to have staggering. But equally, I know people who are happy when they work, who want to work, who find social community when they work, who have a sense, a greater sense of purpose. And there's nothing wrong with that either. Nothing wrong with caring about what you do. So if you have thoughts on that, let me know. I'm, uh, I, I've been very busy the last couple of weeks speaking about the medical assistance and dying legislation and the exclusion of mental health from the um, criteria right now to be eligible for uh, medical assistance and dying. So as you know, I'm very, I care a lot about mental health, so I don't want anybody to think I'm diminishing what uh, the Canadian Mental Health Association is doing or their idea. I just want a bigger picture on work, its value mentally to people, its social connections, and the importance of looking at the whole picture before before we 
start a parade to four-day a work week. So they tried that here in Ontario many years ago. You people who are listening who lived up here then or have family up here will remember the so-called Ray days when Bob Ray was the premier, was going to have four-day work week. That was about saving money. It didn't work very well. But, hey, you got thoughts on that? You're sitting in the snow. Give us a call on that. Equally big topic up here. You heard Brian talk about it in the news, the reframing of um, carbon price rebates. And they're going to use the word I just used. They're going to call them rebates. Is that going to help the federal liberals' political fortunes? And particularly when the portion of the rebate, according to what Brian has reported this morning, at least in the April uh, checks or the checks that will come out by April 1st, is going to be less for Newfoundland and Labrador because according to the reporting, uh, the new reduction of the surcharge on home heating oil will be factored in there. So that will balance, that will require less of a rebate because I assume the thinking and the math is you have received a break there. Does that matter? Does it not matter? Um, you know, how are you feeling about this? Is there anything that the federal liberals can do right now beyond perhaps having the prime minister step aside that is going to change the way many of you are looking at them and looking at the federal political scene? You want to talk about that? We can talk about that. We can talk about the rebranding. So much more. The other thing that uh, Ben and Jerry Lynn talked about this morning is something that really grates at me, and it's something that's also popped its head up uh, these days, and that is our Canadian Security Intelligence Service says the threats against the anti-gender movement are growing and to expect more violence. And we've had lots of able advocates call this program and say that. Now our security services are saying that. Should we not be concerned about this? Should we not be worried about this? And should we not understand if we have a role in propagating, uh, whether deliberately or not, aspects of anger that inflate it to hate that people seize on. Um, Something to think about. It's something that I worry about, um, particularly in larger centers where people are prone to be more violent, though it's not uh, when they're put together with crowds who share a similar view uh, and they act out. We've uh, seen that uh, big and small towns, but certainly something that is of concern to us all. Now, before I go to a break, I want to throw one bouquet out. Um, Just a bouquet to somebody at the other place, the CBC, and many of you know I do work over there, too, on television, but I just want to say congratulations and thank you uh, to Anthony Germain at the CBC. He has done wonderful work throughout his career with the public broadcaster. I first got to know Anthony when he was the host of the um, the national program, The House Here. Of course, he moved uh, to Newfoundland with his wife, Doris. He's made incredible contributions, impressive fellow, went back and got his education degree. Um, well, I would always prefer you listen to VOCN. I can certainly understand why you've tuned in and, and heard Anthony uh, over the years here and when he's been as- on assignment in China. I know he's stepping aside in uh, mid-March to do other things, and if he goes into the classroom full-time, you want to be in there with him. He's a smart fellow, an engaging fellow. So well done, Anthony. Uh, you've had a wonderful run, and it's been a pleasure to know you and watch you and, and learn from you. So I wish you nothing but the best. And now time for our first break here on VOCM's Open Line. When we come back, your calls from the snow, outside the snow, dancing in the snow, I don't care. Just give me a call here. I'm Tim Powers. This is VOCM's Open Line. Back with you shortly. 
Good morning, everybody. Tim Powers in here, as noted, for Patty today, the last day of the week. Hope the snow shoveling is going well. Now, I didn't know this, but I'm glad I now do, and it's an important talk topic to talk about. It is Sexual Health Week, and we have with us now Dr. Uh, Debbie Kelly. Debbie is the uh, professor and special advisor of practice innovation at Memorial School of Pharmacy. Debbie, how are you? I'm great. How are you, Tim? Uh, I am good. When they gave me this topic yesterday, I thought, okay, um, am I going to have to do a lot of reading and speak instructively and well about this? But then they said Debbie can do all of that. So thank you for that, Debbie. Um, but but it's a fascinating topic. Not se- sexual health, of course, is fascinating, but the role of pharmacists. And that's what you want to talk about because whether it's in Newfoundland and Labrador or Ontario where I am now, I think the people you are training and are graduating and are running pharmacies are doing so so much more work these days and have the ability, thankfully, to to do more. And one of the things they play a lead role in is sexual health um, counseling and medication distribution, uh, prescribing of contraceptions. And and you have a study called the Approach Study. So why don't you tell us about the study in a moment, but what it is your pharmacists get often called upon to do as it relates to sexual health? Yeah, so the theme for this week's, uh, this year's Sexual Health Week is Sexual Health is for Everyone. And I think, you know, when we think about sexual health, oftentimes we go to sort of the negative places. We think about, you know, um, when things go wrong. But really, it's important to think about sexual health as uh, an extension. It's part of our health and, and really self care. And I love that they tied it into Valentine's Day. You know, it's, <laughs> That's it's very a great smart. time to talk about sexual health and doing things as part of self love and self care. And so there was a national survey that came out um, that tells us that 40% of Canadians access sexual health services last year. And most of them get those services from their family doctors and sexual health clinics, which is fantastic. But that same survey tells us that 42% of people experience barriers to access. And over 70%, I guess not surprisingly, experience some embarrassment or they're they're concerned about embarrassment or judgment when they seek sexual health services. And that's why I kind of wanted to talk about the role that pharmacists can play. Because as you said, you know, there's a lot of ways that pharmacists can really support sexual health. So providing advice and education, you can go to the pharmacy counter and ask for advice over the counter, or we've got those private rooms where you can have a more discreet conversation. And pharmacists in many provinces now can prescribe for contraception. So you can get your birth control pills um, through the pharmacy. Um, There's also access to the morning after pill um, and really just sort of that advice um, for wellness. So one of the things that kind of led us to this approach study and this, you know, this idea of offering more sexual health services through pharmacies is because we have those barriers. And so many people don't have access to a family doctor um, or may not live close to a sexual health clinic. So in this study, it's called the Approach Study. And we have a website if people want some information. It's just called approachstudy.ca. We're offering testing for um, multiple infections, including syphilis, as well as HIV and hepatitis C. Um, And that's available free of charge, and it uses a finger stick blood sample. It's really quick. We offer a couple of different testing options where people can, um, so it's just like checking your blood glucose if you have diabetes. It's a finger stick blood sample. And um, we have rapid tests where you can get your results for the HIV or hepatitis C on the spot, or there's a dry blood spot test where one sample can test for all three of those infections. And you can get those results from the pharmacist when they're available a few weeks later. 
But the really neat thing about the testing study is that, yeah, you get to find out what your status is, but you also get education. Mm -hmm. And so the people that are going through this study are telling us, you know, um, there's really, in fact, the results are really overwhelmingly positive so far. Over 90% of people are saying they're not experiencing stigma when they go through the pharmacy for testing. And they said that pharmacy testing normalizes that testing experience because sometimes it's like, I don't need that. You know what I mean? I'm I'm in a relationship. I don't need that right now. But, you know, if anybody, perhaps you have a new partner, or maybe you've had multiple partners since the last time you were tested. And in fact, over 30% of people who've come out for the study have never had testing for some of these infections. So if you've never had a test, go out and get tested. Just know your status. Get that peace of mind. If it turns out you have an infection, we can get you linked with, you know, treatment. Hepatitis C and syphilis are curable infections, but you don't know what you have unless you actually have the test. So we're just really encouraging people to think about it, maybe take this step to promote your own um, self-care and get some education. The study's ongoing until the end of March, and we have 12 pharmacies throughout the island portion of the province um, that are participating. And uh, yeah, that's what I wanted to share this morning. Well, I've got two questions to follow up on on what you were sharing, and thank you. That's so informative, and I would encourage people to look at the the approach study to go to the website, and uh, we will We'll give it a plug again later on. On stigma, Debbie, um, first of all, first question, stigma and social media. Uh, We've certainly seen the negative and heard the negative of abuse and harassment and, um, and, and the exploitation of people through social media. So we know the negative. But sometimes there is a storytelling of uh, an empowered sexuality that happens through social media platforms. How has social media in general impacted the stigma positively or negatively around sexual health? Or do you have data on that that you can speak to? That's certainly, I'm not an expert in that area, um, but I would agree with everything that you just said. I think, you know, social media is a really powerful tool in society, then we can all attest to that. Um, and using that power for good is something that we really try to encourage. Um, in fact, as we as we tried to promote and make, make people aware of the possibility of participating in the study, um, we have peer research partners. So people with lived experience, people who identify with a lot of groups who experience stigma and, and discrimination and um, and we, they've come forward and they said, you know, let me make a video about my experience with the study. And, you know, we posted that on, on our website. Again, to your point of trying to put those positive stories out there, I think, you know, hearing from someone's experience is a really powerful way to reduce our own anxieties or fear of the unknown. Um, and, yeah, I, I think... We do worry a lot about it. When we were preparing the pharmacists to participate in the study, we did extensive training with them, including stigma-based testing uh, training. And so our peer research partners, as well as one of my colleagues, Dr. Kyle Wilby at Dalhousie University, who does a lot of work with 2SLGBTQ plus communities, um, talked about stigma, how stigma can really keep people from and. from engaging in health in health services, not just sexual health services, but just in general. If you think that you're going to be discriminated against, or you think that you're going to be asked questions that you feel uncomfortable answering, or people are going to judge you, it holds you back. And um, you know, we all need to be aware of our own biases. And and that was one of the things that we had the pharmacy teams do is 
talk to their teams about what are our biases and our unconscious kind of beliefs, and then how can we make these environments more welcoming so people do feel comfortable asking the questions, engaging in the conversation. So social media is one piece of it, but I think there's also a lot of self-reflection that we all need to do as healthcare providers and people working with communities. And, and that's my second question. I'm so glad to hear there's training, but I, I, we've all probably seen or been part of an encounter where uh, a female seeking uh, contraception or sexual health advice meets a male who's a doctor or a pharmacist. How does gender and that gender encounter influence stigma? Whether it's stigma or, yeah, I mean, I think... There are and that stigma may not be the right word. I ask you yeah. as a professional to, 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 sure. to define it. Sure. Um, I, you know, I think there are always power differentials anytime we yeah. interact with people it, throughout society and certainly in healthcare. That's something to be aware of. We take um, something called a trauma informed approach. Okay, trauma informed. Um, okay. Yeah, and so, you know, basically what that, that refers to is that, um, you know, and there's a lot of literature around this, that people who have experienced trauma may react in different ways than one would expect someone who has not, ex- uh, than we might expect. So, for example, your example of, say, um, a female or a person um, with female genitalia who needs mm-hmm. sexual health, maybe a pap test, they right. may be very reluctant to have a male or someone who presents as a male to do that test if they have experienced perhaps intimate partner violence or, you know, other types of violence. So it's something that, um, again, I think healthcare providers are becoming more aware of and we are getting more training in. But, you know, one of the one of the things that I enjoy most about my job is all of the research that I do is with community. And I've learned so much from our community partners um, because there's no way, no better classroom to learn than from people who have lived experience. And they've really helped us sort of um, call us out when we've done something that could be off-putting um, and given us some direction about how to be more sensitive because it's not a one-size fits, right? What's, my trauma may not be the same as someone else's trauma and how I, how I react in certain situations may not be the same as someone else. And so I think it's really about being person-centered and just having that awareness and that sensitivity that this might be uncomfortable. And even if I'm okay talking about it, the person I'm talking to may not be okay. And how can I make them feel comfortable and give them sort of the power to initiate the conversation or to continue with the conversation or to shut it down and, you know, not damage that that relationship with that person so they know they can come back if and when the time is right for them. Thank you. That so well explained. Uh, Dr. Debbie Kelly, the professor and special advisor, Practice Innovation Memorial University, and the study, www.approachstudy.ca. Check it out. Thank you, Debbie. Great conversation. Appreciated having you this morning. Thanks so much, Tim. Have a great day. You too. All right. When we come back, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, uh, Senator David Wells is going to talk about Verbo and the apology he got for the Eyes the Buys Verbo video that was not very well received, not just in Newfoundland and Labrador, but around the world. We'll talk to Senator Wells, and we'll also talk to Merv Wiseman when we come back here on VOCM's Open Line. Back to Open Line. Tim Powers in for Patty today. Well, the ad, the chickens, eyes, the buys, uh, the irritation, the anger. You pick your descriptor that Verbo caused at home. Uh, got global attention. We were certainly talking about it here in the media in uh, in Ontario earlier in the week. 
Verbo uh, had issued uh, a statement saying that they were removing the ad after its uh, its uh, horrid reception here in the province. Then um, Senator David Wells, who's going to join me in a second, got a note from Expedia with more clarifications and a, and a slightly bigger apology. And I'm going to bring him on now. Uh, David, how are you this morning? I'm fine, Tim. Uh, have you, did you slay the chicken or slay Verbo? I'm not quite sure here. <laughs> you know what? All I did, I, I, <laughs> our, our friend Mark Dobbin, who you know yeah. and I know, uh, he posted uh, he posted the the early flag on it, and uh, and I a little bit later down in his uh, in his in his twi- Twitter thread, I just said agreed. That was my only input uh, <laughs> until, um, of course, I heard everyone was familiar with the firestorm, and uh, and then and then Expedia reached out to me. I didn't reach out to them at all. Um, Interesting. My position, uh, they uh, they they didn't want it to get bigger than it. Uh, than it actually ended up getting. And is, so that first on that, do you, uh, again, was it Expedia USA or Expedia, was somebody from the Hunter Doubt it's from the Expedia group? Do you know where he was calling from or emailing from? Any idea? I'm just going to have a quick look. No, it's not clear on his, uh, on, on his email. Oh, it says Manager Government and Corporate Affairs Canada. Okay. All right. Well, that's interesting. So he saw a Canadian senator expressing dissatisfaction, and he quickly, quickly leaped. So, what did he precisely say, David, in the email? Uh, I'll, I'll just read a little bit of it. I'm reaching out on behalf of Expedia Group to offer my apologies for the verbo ad. I know, uh, I know that many have expressed disappointment, especially individuals from Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, well, I know this was an honest mistake, and actually, Tim, I, I believe it was. I just think yeah. it was a lack of due diligence uh, and meant in no way to depict the province in any negative way. We certainly understand the due diligence. There we go. Uh, as it pertains to the song choice and should have been better. For your awareness, I did have a good conversation with Minister Crocker uh, to relay our apologies. So um, I have my staff right back uh, to say, you know, th- thanks for your note. Um, uh, send, uh, on behalf of Senator Wells, I would like to follow up by asking if there will be any steps to change or remove the song, <laughs> or if there, or if this is simply an apology. Um, and he and he wrote back just a simple line: "Steps have been taken to remove the ad." Wow! So uh, I, it, I, I wasn't I wasn't highly engaged in this. Obviously, I heard <laughs> it. But, you know, we all have busy lives, and, and this took up a small slice. Uh, but uh, I think the recognition that they made a mistake, uh, the commitment to remove it, uh, you know, I had no outrage on it. I, 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 that wasn't part of my reaction. Uh, my reaction was more him, you know, seriously, that that's, you know, that, that that's what they're doing. And, you know, and, and I, I mean, it was clear that this was done by an ad agency. Anyone doing a Super Bowl ad that pays seven yes. million dollars U.S. for 30 seconds, uh, they don't do that in house. It's fascinating, too, because these ad agencies, as you well know, David, they you would think they did a competitive analysis of the marketplace. And had they bothered to do that, they would have seen the volume of uh, provincial government and other agency ads that are out there depicting the beauty, the rustic nature, the you know European flavor. Describe it as you will of, of Newfoundland and Labrador. Do you think let me give you the softball to 
hit out. If your uh, <laughs> X handle didn't have senator on it, we would still be uh, waiting to get a further clarification. You know what? I get that my position uh, does carry some responsibilities and influence. I get that, mm-hmm. and I use that judiciously, um, and I don't I don't abuse it at all, and I recognize my my place. Um, in in that in that realm, and I'm fortunate to to be able to have a voice uh, there. So I, I don't carry any extra uh, extra uh, thought about it, other than my recognition of it. Um, probably not. Uh, although you know, when the province got involved as well, you know that that also carries weight. Um, I did it just as a as as an individual, although an individual who happens to be a senator. Um, uh, so, you know, any company that relies on not just not just the public for their business, but public goodwill for their business uh, has to be extremely sensitive uh, in today's uh, lightning speed news gets out fast world. And 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 to their credit, uh, they, 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 they reacted quickly and appropriately. Well, and let's hope it uh, it puts it all the rest. And hey, take credit for a role you played. I, I and, and certainly my my, implica- my my question was not implying you were throwing your title around, but I know how many of these corporations work, and I suspect as you, as you do, and I suspect uh, they thought, uh oh, uh, we could be in trouble if we don't respond here. So uh, who cares how it came about? It came about, and I think that's a good thing for Newfoundland and Labrador. David, thanks for the time today, and thanks for the role you played in all this. My pleasure, Tim, and uh, and thanks for the great work that uh, that you do and that and that VOCM does, especially in times like this where there's you know a major snowstorm. And uh, VOCM does a great job in getting the word out on closures, road closures, school closures, all the things that uh, that the public needs to know. Them doing that since I was since I can remember. And great well, job. Don't age us, David. Now don't age us. Come on, we we were only we're only young here. Anyway, you have a good weekend. Nice to talk to you. Thank you, Tim. Take care. Uh, Senator David Wells talking about the response he got from the Expedia Media Group related to the Verbo ad, which I think has now disappeared into the ether. Now, uh, another well-known figure in this province, uh, somebody always enjoyed talking to, Merv Wiseman. Merv, how are you? Well, I'm very well, Tim. It's great to hear your voice. And um, look, I'm, I'm calling to talk about a press release uh, that was put out by uh, an organization I'm involved with uh, called the Fisheries uh, Protective Co-op. Um, mm-hmm. I want to address the, some of the items uh, that's in that release. Uh, before I do, though, if I may, I, I want ahead. to uh, extend my condolences. Uh, you talked about Ventralan and Ventralan in your uh, preamble there. And I have some very, very fond memories, uh, aside from, you know, the, the overall impression that we all had of, uh, of uh, Vince uh, Gallant, but uh, some very personal impressions created from all the mornings that he would call looking for briefings when I worked as a search and rescue coordinator. Well, when you, of course, of course. Sub yeah. yeah, and you could always expect that call between 5 and 6 o'clock, and sometimes earlier, <laughs> and we'd go into a full briefing, and, of course, you'd always have a chance to, to chat a little bit. And, you know, that's, my, that's one of my greatest memories, and I do recall as well, uh, just to, you know, to let you know that his abilities and his consciousness of, of issues and so on, that when the Marine Rescue Sub Center was... Um, slated to close, 
uh, he, he called me personally to extend, extend, you know, his help. He said in any way that I can, notwithstanding that he was a journalist and so on, but uh, that he felt there were some things he could do. So I thought that was a great gesture, a great, great personality. And it also shows, Merv, just before you go on, too, uh, old school journalists working the phone all the time, working the phone, mm-hmm. uh, knowing the people they needed to talk to to get uh, the information yeah. they needed to get their stories. And that's not a slight at, at younger journalists, but certainly. They made the effort to build the relationship so that he could call you at five or six in the morning. Mm. You weren't going to fall his head off and uh, he'd be able to tell the story. You'd be able to get your important search and rescue message out. Anyway, go ahead. Tell us about uh, this issue. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, very quickly, because I know time is of the essence here. Um, you know, we've been working, uh, when I say we, there's a, a, a group of us, um, including um, uh, fish harvesters, uh, owners, enterprises, owners, operators, and so on. A steering group set up to, to uh, engineer, if you will, this fisheries uh, a co-op. Um, and myself and, um, and Ryan Cleary, of course, is involved uh, in organizing and so on. But I have to tell you that uh, my role is more of an advisory capacity uh, and to advise on governance, if you will, process and governance and and uh, as well as advocate where, you know, where I think we, we need to, to advocate. But really the grunt work, you know, the, the on-the-ground work, the heavy lifting, as they say, has really been done by Ryan Cleary and uh, his organization, his research and so on, and uh, boots on the ground, if you will. So I have to, I have to say that up front. Um, but um, look, it, uh, we, we now have achieved an important milestone with that organization in that we are now um, officially incorporated into the uh, registrar of, of companies in this province as a fisheries protective co-op. Now, if you notice a, um, some resemblance to the Coker yeah. days. Uh, yes, I was going to say, union. where's William Coker? He's going to pop up here in a moment. Go ahead. Well, I know. I'm a great admirer of him. Among other things, William Coker, you know, is, uh, was a farmer before he got into Was he the, really? Uh, really? Yes, he okay. was indeed. And so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm also uh, passing that uh, free requisite as well because I'm a farmer Good myself involved in the fur industry. Um, well, I, uh, yeah, I, I digress. Sorry about that. Um, anyway, nevertheless, uh, you know, some of the principles, of course, that was uh, that goes back a long ways, it's still alive and, and well today. And, and our ambition, of course, uh, is to, with the organization, is to work uh, in the collective interests and work collectively uh, you know, with the with the fish harvesters out there, some three thousand or so at this point in time, notwithstanding the fact that they're currently involved with a lot of uh, you know processors and buyers in, in in various fashions and so on. But you know, our our ambition and our objectives is really no different from uh, some of the things that we're already seeing in some of the co-ops that's been organized in the province and the Fogelwana Co-op comes to mind. For example, um, Pity Arbor Co-op, you know, the, 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 the shrimp, the Labrador Shrimp Company, although mm-hmm. I don't think that's officially a co-op, but certainly a, a, a social enterprise approach to things. And, uh, you know, that said as well, we our intention is not necessarily to, in any way, to be operating in an adversarial role okay. with uh, people that's already in the business. Or an adversarial role with government and and so on. But we want to work collaboratively, if you will, with uh, all these organizations because we think in order to advance where we're going, that uh, that has to be part and parcel of it. Murph, can I, can I ask you a yeah. question on that? Because you you triggered me with the word collaborative. So. 
Look, I have watched the various groups pop up in, in in the fisheries advocacy space. I understand why they do do more. So you're not of the view in this case that what you have created takes away from maybe a one voice approach to fisheries issues. You believe there needs to be more than one voice and that that can have an empowering impact for the industry. The fishers. No question. Yeah, absolutely, Tim. Look, um, you know, leading up to the uh, this uh, co-op organization, um, you know, we were involved with what we called CNL, Seaforth Enterprise, yep. uh, and it was made up of, and, and it, you know, it was an association of, of professional uh, fish harvesters that was out there who wanted to be professional, much the same as teachers' association, so on and so forth. You know, where I'm going with that. And so it was felt that it was very important that their voice be out there, messages be out there in, in order to, you know, to, to protect, if you will, their interests and where they're going. Um, but, you know, I think one of the things, and, uh, you know, this is the bottom line to a lot of the things and where we're going, is that we've learned that, look, if we're going to be, if we're going to be taken seriously, we have to be a player. Yeah. We have to be a player somewhere uh, between the bottom and the top and the bottom, I could say, being, you know, the catching of the fish and so on and the top being the marketing and uh, right to the plate, you know, from ocean to plate, if you will. And I think yep. um, I don't think anybody out there, um, and whether it's government or whether it's uh, the present uh, buyers uh, that's out there now would um, want to or question why you know, we would want to be uh, fitting into that equation. It's extremely important. And it's not only important for the fish harvesters themselves, but for the communities that uh, works for them. And the Fogelon Co-op is no better example than that, right? Okay. I got about 30 seconds to let you sum up there, Mervyn. So go ahead. Yeah, for sure. Look, we have short and long-term goals. And I want to say, you know, coming into this summer, we hope to get into some levels of collaboration with the existing processor, whether or not it's the traditional or independent processor, to try to, to bring uh, our product, uh, you know, to, to the marketplace. But in the long term, you know, we will be uh, looking to get more proactive and to get in the position to be able to advocate for a lot of the things that's going to make some of our fish harvesters a little more independently um you know, driven, if you will, things okay. like the fisheries loan board. So there will be some advocacy, but uh, uh, th- there's many other uh, items there, and I'm sure we'll get down in the weeds and we'll have more discussion <laughs> on this as the time comes, Tim. Uh, we we will indeed. Uh, thanks for the call. Thanks for the update, and we will pay attention to it here at VOCM. Have a, have a good weekend, Merv. You take care. Okay, doc. Thank you so much for the time. Bye-bye. Oh, bye. All right, that's uh, Merv Wiseman. Just a reminder, too, you can get me on tw- X. Twitter, whatever it's called these days, at Powers Tim. You can email us at openline at VOCM.com. We're going to take a break and come back with more of your calls after that. Welcome back to Open Line. Uh, Tim Powers in today. We're going to go to line three. Eugene Nippard, my friend, Air Ambulance. How's the, the battle going on that front? Well, good morning, Tim. Another good program on the go, Tim. Uh, it's a battle, but uh, I'll get into that uh, in a minute. In a, uh, I am uh, well, you know, Vince Gallant passed away, and uh, uh, you know, a voice that was in our kitchen for many years, and I've talked to the man many times, but I've never met the man in person. But by talking to my friend Terry Hart, that was with VOCM yes. for many, many, many years, he said it was like uh, uh, VOCM was like family. So my condolences go out to his family, his friends, and to everyone at VOCM. I'm sure you're feeling the effect of it today. 
Well, that's very, very kind of you. I, I know it's been a tough blow, particularly for uh, people who've known Vince for a very long time and are in our studio at Camelot Road. So that's very kind of you, Eugene. Thank you. Yes, yes, well, and you're welcome. Uh, uh, I want to talk about air ambulance. Uh, we've been on, on the go since 2018, uh, our air ambulance medical transport advocacy group, and the big concern for us was to have an air ambulance ready for the patient as soon, as quick as possible, and relocated. Uh, we were trying to get air ambulances based in centre, which would be closer to the patient. So the latest from the minister now, Minister uh, Osborne, is that... Uh, a co- uh, as of 1st of April now, when the RFP takes effect, we're going to have, instead of the four air ambulances based in St. John's and one in Goose Bay, it's going to be two in St. John's and three in Goose Bay. Uh, we know, and I know because I followed the flights, we got many, many, many. The majority of our flights are out of Labrador. And I've heard the MHA, MHAs in Labrador complain. We have had people that have been there for like two days waiting for their ambulance. We have had people died waiting for their ambulance uh, because of not enough uh, planes, not enough medical personnel. So that's 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 a plus. Uh, we're still going to keep lobbying and try to get one based in Central. Uh, now, whether that will happen, we don't know, but all we can do is keep trying. We do believe it was in Central Newfoundland to be closer to the patient. Uh, there will be an Air Force One based in Gander. We got the confirmation on that, and that and that'll be a shuttle, uh, same day cardiac uh, catheterization uh, operation, same day operation. So that's good, and we got some good news for the people on the West Coast. Uh, like I know, my friend Dave. Callahan's been complaining. We needed need coverage for for Stephenville, and yes, uh, that Art Force One will be taken in Stephenville also. So that's good news, uh, you know. So uh, things is moving along, and uh, hopefully we can, you know. And I do say, Tim, that mm-hmm. uh, these air ambulances may be positioned elsewhere if the needs of the operations are there. Okay. So who knows? Hopefully, may do do well. Consider putting an ambulance in Gander down the road. We hopefully, along with the Art Force One. So uh, things is moving along, and uh, we're open for the best. Well, I appreciate the update. Uh, the whole air ambulance service, the air medical air service, is so vital uh, everywhere, but particularly in Newfoundland and Labrador. And uh, you and others are are keeping your eye on it, and we're very fortunate that you are. You have a good weekend, Eugene. Thank you. Yeah, one thing I forgot, and I'll make it quick. Oh. Uh, there's also going to be 24-7 coverage now uh, that we didn't have before. We only had up to 10 p.m. in Goose okay. Bay some time ago, but now it's going to be 24-7. That's a big one, very important. You know, that, that's yes, very important. People that don't stop needing medical services after 10 p.m. often. So uh, appreciate, appreciate that update. You take care, Eugene. Yes, thank you for your time. You're doing an excellent job. You always do. Appreciate it. Thanks, thanks buddy. Have a good day. Uh, all right, that was Eugene Nippert on Air Ambulance. Uh, you heard me talking about MAID earlier. We have a caller now, Kaylee, on line two, who wants to talk about the Medical Assistance in Dying program and her perspective on it. Kaylee, how are you? Hi, good day. Um, hello, Newfoundland. Uh, I've been fighting this battle for about two years now, and... Uh, okay. I cannot afford to keep food in my fridge anymore. I'm unable to work. And I can't even work with the Department of Seniors and whatever they call themselves now because you call in there 
you get these ghouls who just say, oh, you're getting the maximum amount a human being or a single person gets. And I'm like, okay, that's great. Uh, my rent's $900 a month. And the food prices, every time it hikes up, I'm like, okay, what can I not afford this week? And it's gotten to a point that now with April coming, it's like, oh, they're raising the minimum wage. It's like, okay, everything's going to go up again. But I won't get anything different. I still get $130 a week to live off of all of these. And that includes my bills. That includes, like, medicine that isn't covered. And I cannot get government to call me back. I can't get a dialogue going. It's always just, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, it's that. Whatever. Click. It's like, okay. So, I mean, I'm, like, shaking here. It's like, what do I do? What am I supposed to do? No one wants to hire me because of my disability. So do I just start? That's a terrible plight you're in. Have you, and again, I don't, if if there's a coldness in this suggestion, it's certainly not meant to be. And that is, have you tried to go through your member of parliament, uh, though, as you say, you're looking for provincial funding or your local uh, member of the House of Assembly? They can be very strong advocates for uh, for their constituents and no luck. Uh, Jeff Dwyer said I should write a letter and he'll bring it to the, the House of Assembly and that's it. Wouldn't even talk to me. So it's that sort of thing. You know, it's like, again, you can't really like have a dialogue. You can't really work with people. And then and I'll tell you, too, it's like if there's some sort of discrepancy when it comes to like dealing with income support, you know, you be honest with them. And suddenly they're like, oh, that's everything bad. We're going to get cut off. Like it is such a sort of Damocles. And if you're somebody who like you rely on this. I'm always scared I'm going to lose my drug coverage. I'm scared I'm going to, you know, like not have enough food. I've been going to bed hungry these nights, and I'm really sick. I'm, like, actually deteriorating. And, I mean, I'm talking to my social worker about me because I don't want to starve to death. I don't want to see myself, like, get five different diseases that are chronic and still be in this situation. Uh, and just before I, I ask you a question, well, I'll, I'll give sure. you some information that was just given to me. So let me ask the question first. So, yeah, I, 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 what is your social worker said in response to your talking about made? Because as I'm sure she has said to you, and as you know, it's it's a very um, uh, lengthy process that requires yep. a, a informed consent, doctors signing off on it, and the like. What is the what what a, what counseling has she given you? She doesn't like the idea. She supports me. That is truly what I want. Um, And the problem is it isn't truly what I want. But what are my options? I mean, that's the thing. Right now, as I currently would say it, I mean, maybe it's a stronger language, but the way that Canada is currently running, uh, in Newfoundland in particular is running, is soft eugenics. If you're somebody who can't work 60-plus hours a week, you don't really get to eat. You don't deserve to have a roof over your head. At least in this province before, I always managed to have my bottom pyramid covered. You know, I had a roof over my head. I had enough food. It doesn't really take a lot to make me happy. I mean, I'm somebody who, like, I don't want a car. I don't want a fancy house. I just want a small life with a dog. Quality of life and dignity. Bingo. That's all I want. You know, and it's like, no, sorry, you don't meet the criteria. Goodbye. Click. I remember asking about people with my disability, and they were like, well, do you have an IQ above 70? Yes. Can't help you. Click. 
yeah, so, sometimes you don't fit in the box nicely, and that uh, doesn't feel very nice for you or anybody else in these circumstances. I was just given some information, Kaylee. Maybe it's helpful to you. Maybe it's not. Maybe you've tried yep. there, but have you tried the coalitions, a coalition of persons with disabilities? I have not, actually. This is a new one for me. I've tried the Autism Society. They have not got back to me. Um, uh, tried them a few times. But, yeah. well, here, I will give you the number, and all of Newfoundland can hear the number, too, because there may be others sure. who are, are struggling as you are. Uh, so well, it's the coalition. Then thank you. Thank you. No, it's really important that you did. Coalitions of per, Coalition of Persons with Disability. Uh, the number is 709 uh, 722 and the executive director is a person by the name of Nancy Reed. I don't know if Nancy will be able to help you or not, but mm. you are clearly a very persistent person, as you should be, as it's your mm -hmm. health. Uh, give give her a call. And look, is there anything else you'd like to add? Because, again, I don't think sure. you're alone. I can give you about a minute or so. What else would you like to add? What else can you share? Um the Fury government here is completely tone deaf. Um, we have a high instance of ADHD. That means people who, our brains run quicker. We need more sugar. They put a sugar tax on. It made things even harder. And when the prices of food went up, they should have said, well, we can't do this. We'll try a different way. Which brings us another question. If they're making so much of a sugar tax, how come I'm not seeing any actual improvements in like the lives of people like myself or even my workers who help me? It's just so hard. And I see a lot of F. Trudeau, and I'm like, no, it's not Trudeau. It's all provincial. F. Fury is how I think. Well, hey, you're, yeah. you, you're living in a very difficult spot, and I can understand your uh, – well, I, I'm not living in your space, but I would probably be very angry if, if I was. And, look, uh, people, we may get people who, uh, who call in in response who may want to reach out to you, so our producer, Dave, will let you know. Thank you, Kaylee. It takes a lot of courage to call for a first-time caller. That uh, I'm sure you wish you were calling on something else, but, but thank you for telling your story, and thank you for perhaps helping other people, and we hope you get help too. Thank you so much, and thanks for the platform for these few minutes. It means a lot. All right. Uh, good luck to you. Thank you. All right. Um, that was a tough call. If you have feedback you want to give, Kaylee, I'm sure we'll continue to listen. Please do uh, do give us a call if you know uh, somewhere where she might be able to get some help uh, to, uh, to further her uh, and to help advance uh, that knocking that struggle back. Give us a call. Time for news here, though, now on VOCM. Uh, back with you after that. Welcome back to Open Line. Tim Powers in for Patty Daly. Well, you've probably heard the ads. The Beer Canada ads are in heavy rotation. Bob and Doug McKenzie talking about the increased excise in excise duty, the increase in that tax, which is going to go up by 4.7% in April, which means your beer is going to be more expensive. Uh, and that's really irritating a lot of people and, and challenging some businesses in uh, in the uh, in the world of suds. And I'm going to talk with one of those owners now. Phil Maloney is the owner and general manager of the Bannerman Brewery. Phil, how are you? I'm good. Thanks, Tim. How are you doing? Good. Got to compliment you. Live down in the street or when my mother lives down the street, been in. You've turned that fire hall into a wonderful spot. Uh, I have enjoyed my time there. And um, 
as a fellow brewery, microbrewery owner, I have an ownership stake in one here in, uh, in Ottawa. Glad to see you uh, doing so well. So I also have self-interest here, Phil, just to get that out the door as well. So let's <laughs> just you, rant I, I and rave it. about the federal government. Uh, I know in our case, uh, and our, our brewery operates here in Ontario, that this excise tax is an irritant. I'll describe it that way, that the bigger challenge for us is the provincial tax uh, that's mm-hmm. applied to breweries. Where does it fit in Newfoundland and Labrador, and how does it impact you and, and fellow brewers in the province? Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, where it fits is, is kind of a little bit all over the map, depending on the size of, of the brewery. Um, I'll say for us, yeah, for sure. So, you know, we're down here in this fire hall. It's, it might look like a big building, but, you know, we're a relatively small brewery uh, compar- comparatively, you know, certainly compared to the big guys. And even some of our friends, you know, at Kitty Bitty, Lamb Wash and, and Banish, you know, they've, they've got a, a quite a big output. Um, so for us, you know, we're primarily focused on, on in-house sales as much as we can. And then we've got some, you know, packaged beer going out, but um I will say, I guess this, the increase, it, it is an irritant for sure, you know, with the excise tax going up and then, you know, the NLC has a, a tax hike of, I think, two and a half percent coming up in April. Um, you know, overall, it's not, it's, it's not going to sink us, you know, it's, it's not big enough that it's, that it's that bad, but it is certainly an irritant. Um, any price increase in, uh, in these times is, is tough. You know, we've, We've navigated, well, you're well aware of what we've all had to navigate, but, you know, we opened in, in 2019. We had one good summer kind of under our belt and then one Christmas season and then everything shut down. So we've kind of been up and down ever since then. But, um, yeah, an irritant is a, is a great way to describe uh, this, this tax rate hike for sure. And what do customers say to you, Phil? And again, I'll use our experience. Like we work really hard to try and keep prices constant. And customers do understand that sometimes you have to put it up a little bit. They'll pay a little bit more. Our experience is for craft beer than they will pay for a more the, the more traditional um, big brew brands. But what are you hearing from your customers and how do you manage that when governments say you need to pay us more? For sure, yeah. I mean, managing customer expectations is... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean, mean to laugh. Yeah, there you go. No, <laughs> yeah, no, but it's, you know, it's it's of paramount importance, really, you know, kind of how we're, we're perceived. You know, we obviously are a small business. We, you know, with any price increase, we don't want to come off as, as you know, greedy or, or what have you. Um, I, I do think, though, people understand you know the world we live in and what's been going on and and we've had some very small price increases i'm talking like you know a quarter a pint or you know eight or ten cents a can kind of just to combat the 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 price the the taxation hikes that are coming in just to kind of just just to combat them really and people have been have been understanding it also you know not there hasn't really been much you know backlash i would say um People are yeah relatively accepting of of the fact that you know we're in this inflationary time where the price of everything's going up and we're just creeping up a little bit you know just to kind of you know prevent you know negative effects from from coming down from these tax increases. Uh, l- last question for you. Look um, again the Ontario example, and I don't know if it's applicable in Newfoundland. That's why I ask. Ontario's made a a 
big deal about the importance of craft breweries in local economies, particularly in smaller centers. And you and I can point to places in Newfoundland and Labrador where the new local craft brewery or the one that's been there for 10 years is is a real driver uh, for the economy. Um, do you see both in Newfoundland and Labrador and Canada the enthusiasm that is being expressed for breweries matched by the policies to help enable breweries and other small businesses to to succeed. Can't get that word out, to succeed. Uh, that's a tough one. I, you know, I think there are a lot of, you know, there were a lot of programs in place, certainly four or five years ago when we opened. Um, you know, there was there was government assistance, you know, to, to help get out, get up and running. You know, it's a big capital endeavor to open up a brewery. Yeah. And I think a common misconception is that it's, you know, this everyone sees breweries and they're busy and it's this, you know, get rich quick overnight thing. Then oh, you see a lot of breweries, like <laughs> a lot of breweries are in planning phases and then some of them don't end up happening. And and I do think there's there is a common misconception of that. Um, yeah. I, so there, there, I believe there was a lot of assistance in play. I know a lot of funding bodies have since kind of reduced uh, funding, you know, new breweries because. You know, honestly, the market is getting more and more, uh, I don't want to say flooded, but, you know, we're all friends in this industry and it's, it is getting crowded. Shelf space is getting crowded. It is what it is. And I feel like Ontario really feels that, you know, they've got a much larger customer base than we do, obviously just by sheer population. And also the percentage of people drinking craft beer is much higher than the Newfoundland, but you know these breweries. I, I I don't know the stat. I don't have it offhand. But there's mm -hmm. there's so many breweries closing every year in Ontario, and there's another twenty or fifty or a hundred opening. Like it's it's a crazy just turnover of breweries opening and closing. So I feel like they they're really feeling that pinch. Um, now, mind you, you know, with based on our population size, that there's there's quite a number of breweries, craft breweries on the go right now, and in the province. And, uh, you know, it definitely feels a little bit tighter. Like when we opened, we were mm -hmm. just, we couldn't get beer out the door fast enough. And now it's, you know, just now we're cold calling NLCs in rural places trying to get beer out there. So things have changed. And I think, you know, as these, as any of these kind of irritants come up, these tax, these tax hikes, any kind of expense increase, you know, everyone's just, yeah, everyone's doing their best. Everyone's trying to keep keep the lights on, keep going, and uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, I'm sure we'll come out the other side. Again, it's it's not like it's it's going to sink us, or I don't think any of us breweries in Newfoundland, but it, it obviously will affect the larger producers much more than it affects us. Now, Phil, you've popped uh, the myth that uh, craft brewing is just a glamorous, glowing game and we're all rolling in the dough. I'll, I'm shocked, sir, you've done that today. Anyway, appreciate <laughs> your call. Appreciate the input. And, and keep it up. You guys have a, uh, as you, you've mentioned, many of your, your peers, but uh, you, Kitty Vitty, there's lots of you, Port Blanford, tons of you. Uh, keep it up. You're great for the economy. You offer great service. And if you're in St. John's and you're by the Hotel Newfoundland or whatever it's called now, the Sheridan, go in and uh, and avail at Bannerman Brewery. Thanks for your time today. Yeah, thanks so much. And yeah, please do come by the shop and we'll I'll be out at the uh, Frosty Festival tonight in Mount Pearl Pouring some beer along with uh, a slew of other brewery owners. So if you're in the area, pop on in. Thanks, Phil. Good luck. Take care. Thanks, Tim. See ya.
All right, that was Phil Maloney, the owner, general manager of Bannerman uh, Brewery. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, Ken Green is going to talk to us in response to some of the comments Merv had. And Eddie St. Croix, the chair external of St. John's Pride, is going to talk about the uh, report from CSIS concerning uh, anti-gender movement violence worries that they have. Back with those calls after this break. Welcome back to Open Line. Now going to go to Ken Green, himself a fisher who wanted to uh, talk about the lack of movement from the fisheries department on licenses. And I think, Ken, you wanted to maybe offer a comment on Merv, though up to you. Uh, welcome to the show. Yes, thank you, Tim. <clears throat> yeah, I'm Merv, dear. Uh, well, I supported Ryan and Merv on this uh, committee. Matter of fact, I am a member of the committee. Okay. I'm on the, I'm on the steering committee, and I don't mind saying it. <clears throat> And uh, from my perspective as an independent fish harvester, it's all about freedom from the processor, who, by the way, got us all by the neck. We got no freedom. We're told when to go out, when to come in, how much, and blah, blah, blah. Last year, I sold some fish one day, and I just because I went on Patty's show one morning and I complained about the grade that I got, Yeah. two days after, the buyer cut me off, and he said he was done with me. And Is that right? So, uh, Oh, yeah, they're done with me. They have nothing else to do with me, and um, they weren't going to buy nothing else from me, whatever. So I went to the union. The union said, let us let, let us handle it. So I let them handle it, and up right up to the date today, there is nothing. As a matter of fact, the union gave me a letter on last Friday, I think. They sent me an email saying that it's a legal opinion, their legal advisors, to drop the matter, and they weren't going to have nothing else to do with it. Because they said the processor could come up with some strong arguments as well for example they had their there was a capacity problem why they didn't buy fish from me well if there was a capacity problem I said to myself uh, the plant was blocked up I certainly never blocked it up what they bought from me and why did they only stop buying from me you know that didn't make a bit of sense to me whatsoever anyway this is a lot of stuff like this going on so right now Hmm. the 2024 fishing season fast approaching I still don't have a buyer for lobster or a cod uh, there were supposed to be some announcements made last year before Christmas on two new processing licenses and uh, list a cap on another independent fish processor. His license was supposed to be listed a cap, so that would give him more uh, quota to so, process. Can so give us context be- for those. Just, just if I can interrupt you for one second, please. Give us context for those of us who aren't in the industry. What would the normal timeline be in terms of you knowing when you get your licenses and allocations? Well, how 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 traditionally has it worked? Well, I paid for a ground fish license and a lobster license the other day, and I registered okay. the two boats with. Uh, DFO, and now I got to register them with Transport Canada, which is a new thing. Yeah. Uh, I think it was on the go last year, but that's another another license you got to buy. And then I got to have a well, there's a lot of other licenses you got dockside monitoring and everything, right? Like this stuff. But anyway, the dockside monitoring that was one of the issues I had there. If I land fish in Carbonier or Harbor Grace or wherever around here, and I'm selling it to this processor that I was selling it to. Right. Uh, he's 100 kilometers away from here. So if my fish was in perfect condition when I sold it to them and I got the receipt on the scales in Carabineer, now that's in their hands. When they get it down to their plant, then they grade it. So there's the potential there for the fish to get soft or something could happen to it on the way. Maybe the ice melted under God knows what. But 
in my opinion, in one day, that nothing happened to that fish if it was put in loose and, and trucked to their, their plants. The fish should have been in perfect condition when they got it. But I got this grade, which I complained about. And what I, the other thing I wanted to know was, why can't the fish be graded on the wharf in front of us? Because it's my fish until it goes over the scales. After it goes over the scales, it's theirs. Mm-hmm. Now, they can call all that grade C next day. And what can I do about it then? So you're not getting answers from anybody on any of these things that are satisfactory. I've been the whole winter trying to get hold of the DFO and uh, the Provincial Fisheries in St. John's because that's who's handling this, this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's not DFO. Anyway, I can't get no answer from nobody in there. I did. Somebody did answer the phone, but they like, turned the deaf ear to everything I was saying. And right now, <clears throat> as a member of this steering committee for this mm-hmm. pre- co-op, I want to ask... Elvis Lovelace, why is it that he has stalled this announcement on this tool fish processing license from should have been announced in, before Christmas, he says, and now here it is in mid-February and still no announcement. Okay. Well, you've asked it. And sorry, I was just going to say if he wants to call in, Ken, and, and answer it, go ahead, sir. I'll give you about another 30 seconds. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, uh, Ryan been on the, with Patty there a couple of times now requesting the are asking questions why this is not announced and asking he to announce it and let the fishermen uh, the harvesters and the plants that's waiting for it to do something make some kind of announcement tell us yes you're going to have it or no you're not getting it or whatever so we can go ahead and plan our season yeah, right now we don't we're just on the clothesline hanging in the wind and your request seems reasonable to me based on what i know on the surface of it and as i say if uh, elvis lovelace mr lovelace is listening we will uh, we will pursue that question for you thanks ken good insight good luck to you uh that has to be exceedingly frustrating what you're going through it is and you wouldn't believe it but anyway thank you for your time all right take care all right that was uh, ken green talking about some of the frustrations uh, he and others are are having getting some direction from the provincial department of fisheries all right let me apologize first i said eddie st croix uh it's eddie st Cor. so i'm sorry eddie i got your name wrong he's the co-chair of external at st john's pride eddie is joining us to talk about the uh report from ceases and you can read the story if you want on cbc's site um but the headline i'll read it for you and i'll get eddie's uh, take on it ceases warns that the the anti-gender movement poses a threat to extreme violence, and they're um, saying that events that happened at the University of Waterloo last year where there was an extreme violent attack against two SLGBQ2 plus community members um, could lead to more uh, acts of terrorism. Eddie, uh, this, this has got to be very upsetting to, to see this, though I suppose it's no surprise, unfortunately, is it? No, Tim, it's not. Like it is, it is absolutely upsetting. We actually we had a board meeting last night, and this came up, and it was a conversation that we're kind of used to having now. But it is concerning. It's not surprising to us. It's what we've been telling enforcement agencies here in the city. It's what we've been flagging to the government. It's what the national body has been flagging to the government. And there is, there are real threats that are happening here at home in St. John's and, and across Newfoundland and Labrador, and it's it's frustrating for communities like ours because. Oftentimes, as much as we, we, we do appreciate that enforcement agencies will keep us updated on, on if they see anything, they, they did security reports to us and monitor things right up until the parade last year, and we're really thankful for that. But sometimes when we have situations where there's targeted hate, like mm-hmm. last year, we had, last fall, I don't, know if I, I don't know if you remember, but we had a situation where somebody, somebody started making threats about explosions at parades. 
and we brought yes, them to our, the yes, right? yes, 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 we brought yes, this yes, to the RNC and, and, and the RNC took it and went with it and they came back to us and they said you know given the way that given the tools that we have there's really we can't do anything here we can't move forward with this and this person and people on all sides could see that this person was trying to make a threat just to make people in our community feel afraid and my challenge back to the Department of Justice, Justice and Public Safety and my challenge back to enforcement agencies when I hear these things is, no, if, if we acknowledge that there's a security threat, if we acknowledge that a part of a marginalized community in the city doesn't feel safe, then it's not enough to tell me that there's nothing that can be done. What, what we have identified is that there's a gap in the tools. But it's not enough to say, we know these threats are there and we know that you live in fear and we know that you think you might be attacked, but, ugh, you know, nothing we can do. That's really cool comfort for people in our community. Mm -hmm. And it's cool comfort for young people that are coming up, especially when, when they're seeing all of these, these situations of hate. We have parents that are reaching out to us and saying, you know, my kid is really stressed out. Mm -hmm. Like, do you, have, do you have supports that I could send? Because this hate that people are, that young people are seeing, the same as people that are getting radicalized and that are seeing these types of hate and getting motivated by it, that's starting to trickle down into younger generations, and it's really concerning. And I think that we have to start having a very real discussion in, in the country and in the province and our communities about what kind of a place do we want to live in? We can have disagreements on policy and, and those kinds of things, absolutely. That's how Canadian society advances, and it's how we have evolution of rights that we do now. But it's getting very concerning for people in our community to watch these instances of hate, and they're starting to become normalized. People are kind just, of going, yeah, well, I mean, you and I just had the yeah. opening in the discussion. Remember, yeah. when, remember in the fall? And it was like, oh, yeah, I remember when that happened. Yeah, yeah. That, that's becoming our reality, and it's very concerning that, and now that we're seeing it elevated to the Canadian Secret Intelligence Service, that kind of affirms what pride organizations and communities across the country have been saying. And, and on the one hand, it's kind of like a finally, it's acknowledged, can we do something about it now? And that's what we're, that's what we're waiting to see. But in a time, Eddie, when we should be a more open, pluralistically understanding society because we have learned so much about hate and prejudice and, and trauma that are created through those circumstances and outright discrimination, I, I, I mean, it has to pain you because it certainly pains me as a, uh, as a heterosexual male just look who, who, who's worried about his son's future uh, just in terms of the nastiness of society to look to Alberta, to look to New Brunswick, to uh, look to Saskatchewan and see how the whole... I won't even say debate um, how those provinces in particular are dealing with trans rights and, you know, legislation notwithstanding clauses, things that seem to be born entirely out of ignorance or political opportunity. Uh, I, I'd offer you the opportunity to comment on how more how much more difficult the battle is to get people to understand when you see provincial governments going down the paths that those three are. Well, there's two... There, there's there's kind of two things at play there. For one, like on a on a larger level, there are people who have a vested interest in getting Western countries like ours to just fight amongst themselves. Yeah, that's true. It distracts true. from the issue. It, it, it keeps us from focusing, putting our focus where it should be, and we just start infighting over things like this. And you can see different topics over the last couple of years that have come up, especially where we're seeing so much misinformation and things online. And there's just people that are trying to set fires on both sides just to cause people yep. to be going. 
The bigger the concern for us directly here is that it's our rights that are being politicized. Mm-hmm. Like I, I was watching, I was I was flipping through the internet the other night, and there was a there was a surgeon I think in the states, and all they do is and all they do is they specialize in gender affirming care, and they were going through and explaining and dispelling all these myths, which I'm sure must be exhausting for them as a professional. But one of the things that they said that stood out to me was, this is the only type of healthcare that's been shown to have positive effects and positive outcomes for the individual, that has shown to increase quality of life, that has been shown to save lives, and it's one of the only he said the only part of healthcare that he knows of where every step of the way the profession has to defend what they're doing and why that they're doing it. And what amazes me through all of this is so many people are this concerned over something that may not affect them individually. Unless you're somebody who's who's seeking um, gender-affirming care for, like, for, for reasons that you need, the thing that blows my mind so much in all these discussions is why is this so much of a concern for people that this doesn't affect? Yeah. And that's the piece. And, and, and it's these people that are lighting fires to just cause this, this fighting back and forth. And in Alberta, just uh, to, to conclude on the point about that province, I believe last year, and we won't have time to get into the legislation or proposed legislation, there were only eight people who uh, sought um, the top or bottom surgeries. I believe there were top surgeries at the time. I, I want to give you 30 seconds because I have to go to break. What's yeah, your I message, guess- the message to the broader audience here as to what we can do here? to help for the broader audience my message is that you have queer people in your lives and in your community and they don't feel safe and last year we put a call out in the lead up to the festival for people to put up uh pride and progress flags whether you remember the community or not because that signals to somebody on your street in your neighborhood that there is safety in their community so for the broader group that's that's what i want to put out there for our community specifically who's listening and the board especially called me this morning and wanted me to make sure that i got this message across the safety of people participating in our pride events is integral to our planning. We're in the planning stages right now. We're looking at all of these things and we're already trying to get ahead and look at what we did last year. Last year we had a great festival. We had, it was a really fun festival. We didn't have, have any big, big instances, but that came with planning that happened in a really short amount of time. So safety is paramount to us, and we're going to continue to work and focus on that in the lead-up to the festival. And we're putting a call out to the provincial and federal governments to provide resources to do that. Last year at the 11th hour, the federal government issued funding, I think, days before our parade in July. Pride Month traditionally is in June. So we need a little bit better proactivity when it comes to governments that are recognizing that there's parts of the community that don't feel safe and providing resources to be able to address it so that people can gather safely, which is a protected charter right. Okay. I appreciate uh, the call and uh, certainly uh, uh, you have my solidarity in the the messages that you've delivered. Thank you, Eddie. Thank you, Tim. Take care. All right. Time for a break here on VOCM's Open Line. Graham and Brian, you're next when we come back. Welcome back to Open Line. We're going to go to Graham Wood on line five. Graham, of course, uh, from Lewisport, recently started and brought a petition to the House of Commons on extending um, the recreational fishery in Newfoundland and Labrador, making it more predictable, hoping that it can run from July 1st to October 1st. Uh, Graham, how are you and how is it going with the petition? Good morning, Tim. How are you doing? I'm good, thank well, you. Welcome Very back good. to VOCM. We only hear your voice periodically. 
<laughs> Some say that's a good thing, Brian, but you got a full bore oh, this morning. Good. That's good. You keep your eyes on the on the ball anyway. Uh, Tim, uh, how is it going? Well, as of uh, a few minutes ago, we're almost up to 2,900 uh, signatures on the petition. And uh, we're shooting for 5,000. We've got 13 more days. Okay. What is interesting, when you use the word recreational, there's been some controversy over that. But, but uh, when we drew up the petition and in consultation with uh, MP Clifford Small, mm-hmm. uh, we had to use the word recreational because that's what's in the legislation. Yeah, that's how it's defined, and, uh, right, by you know, DFO. Yeah, it's interesting. I got a phone call the other day from somebody who actually sat in on the meeting. <laughs> when mm-hmm. he discussed what the wording would be when uh, I think when Loyola Hearn was the Minister of Fisheries. And uh, he said discussion was to keep it recreational because it's, yeah, they, wanted, they didn't want to label it a food fishery. Uh, interesting. Like, interesting, yeah, very interesting. And he actually was at the meeting. Because uh, I assume then, Graham, the argument is, uh, again, having worked there years ago, but if, if food fishery would allow for catching of a greater number of species and may have other policy implications connected to the rights of others to catch fish, or am I going down the wrong path there? Well, I think when you look at, uh, you know, when you look at Norway and Iceland, they talk yeah. about a cultural connection with the fishery. Okay. And uh, interesting, I got a letter, I just sent it to you a little while ago. But uh, the letter opens with uh, fish in our waters do not belong solely to the commercial fishery. And the fact is that the fish belong to the people of Newfoundland and Labrador uh, and and Canada and the other countries. Now, Norway has a very, uh, a very, uh, let's say, cultural. The fact is that they they say the fishery is a cultural thing. Uh, same in Newfoundland. I mean, uh, we've always been able to take a few fish. And the reality is that by limiting us to three days a week, people rush out and get their fish. Just like when Bix pickles, we couldn't get their Bix mustard pickles. <laughs> I remember and, the pickles. Uh, and our fossils cream. Everybody went to every little <laughs> store in Newfoundland to get to find the fossils cream and the Bix pickles, right? So uh, it, allowing for flexibility whether it's from the 1st of July to Labor Day or 1st of July to the, to the 1st of October, as we proposed. Uh, I mean, the reality is that people have flexibility to go out on the water, take their families, you know, enjoy the day, not be rushed on the weekends. Uh, you know, people come home for the holidays. When the, when the fishery, when the food fishery is on in rural Newfoundland, the harbors are buzzing. Uh, boats are coming and going. Uh, people are into the restaurants, staying at the hotels and motels. The economy actually booms in rural Newfoundland. So the more and, and I've done this since. I have to tell you, sorry to interrupt you for a second. I, I see it right. I had the opportunity to do this a couple of years ago, um, just out, out out of the gut in Kitty Vitty, and it was fun. It was fantastic. It was. I, I can't talk about. I can't praise it enough was there with a bunch of other people who are in town for some international rugby and they still talk about it uh and they say they'd come back and do it again and i can only imagine the excitement and and thrill of doing it outside of the city in rural newfoundland so sorry to interrupt you go ahead no it's not a problem but i mean the fact is that it becomes a very important part of what the government of newfoundland and we don't hear anything from any elected officials at all the only one that i've been in communication with is Clifford small but we we um, we hear the government of Newfoundland wants to increase tourism, 
the fishing the 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 fishing in BC is worth hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Mm-hmm. And yet in Newfoundland, we can only take tours as I operate muscle bit boat tours. Uh, we can only take tours to retain the fish on Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. Now, what about people who call me for Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday? Yep. And yep. I have to tell them, I'm sorry, we can't retain fish. I can get a special uh, experimental license from DFO to catch fish. I have to weigh them, measure them, document them, give the GPS location, and then send in a report at the end of the year to uh, to tell them how many fish I've actually I've actually caught. But the last statement in the in the actual experimental license, unlike Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and PEI, and people who operate under experimental licenses, it says to us must be returned live after study. And uh, and the reality is that a lot of those fish, yeah. you know, don't survive being taken out of the water, put on a uh, put on a platter on the boat. Uh, weighed, measured, all that stuff, and put them back in, and their air bladders blow up, and they just float along the water, and they're great food for the eagles. So the reality is that we in Newfoundland have been too complacent. Over the years, and since we, we talk about the food fishery, if people have more flexibility to get on the water when the days are good, when they have their families home, uh, when their relatives are around and they can yep. make a day of it, like you said, it's 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 an experiential, uh, let's say, a major positive experiential oh. experience for for people who visit here. Oh, it's 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 brilliant. As I say, people still talk about. It. I got got to give you about uh, a minute here. So, how can people help? Because you're right, isn't it? That five thousand person threshold is vital for um, getting the petition more attention so what yeah. can people do if they want to help you with this well they can they can go to ourcommons.ca and search petitions and the petition is e4781 right but i just want to make one more point sure the ffawu made a statement last friday uh, that they want, uh, they don't agree with this. In fact, in the initial meeting, they never agreed. They never wanted a, a food fishery or recreational fishery. The, the the people of the province own this resource, not the commercial fishermen. The fact is, is that they called for increased monitoring and enforcement. So now we want more cops on the water. Uh, we want more people on the wharf. Okay. There are people who are abusing it. I don't disagree with that. And I'm not saying it's not fishermen who are doing it. But, uh, you know, when you go out and buy fish from a local fisherman, I don't know if that fish has been registered under the TAC or what their catch limits are. All I know is I buy the fish for 4 to $5 a pound, as other people do, rather than going to Loblaws or or yep. uh, Sobeys and paying $10 a pound for the fish. And it's beautiful fresh fish. Local fishermen do a fantastic job in in preserving their fish and, and, and preparing the fish and selling it. And they're selling it for four fifty a pound. Not $0.85 cents a pound on grade A or $0.30 cents a pound in grade C. <laughs> you know, head on go. So, I mean, I just want to make that statement because the reality okay. is, is that if we think that we're going to add more enforcement uh, on the water, then the cost of that more enforcement is humongous. 
I mean, uh, you know, I don't know what it costs to train a fisheries officer. And give it's them a not cheap. It's not any law, any law enforcement officer is uh, because there's a number of skill sets that are required. But yeah, don't mean to cut you off. Got to go to break yeah. here, here, okay. Graham. Thank you. Anyway, Good luck. Keep us updated on that petition. Yeah, get out and, and uh, sign your name to the petition, and hopefully we can get uh, we can get the federal government and maybe the provincial government, if they want to speak up on behalf of their citizens to uh, to support it and uh, and get this done. Okay, perfect. Thanks for the call today. Take care. Take care. Thanks. All right, that was Graham Wood uh, talking about uh, the petition he's launched and also uh, giving us some interesting background on the recreational fishery definitional policy. All things that are vital to know. Time for a break here on Open Line. When we come back, Brian, you're up next to talk about mass shootings and gun laws. I'm guessing we're going to be looking at that situation in Kansas City. Back with that after this. Oh, I was listening to that ad just before I go to Brian, the Newfoundland Labrador construction industry. So many of you know my dad was involved for in construction for years. Wonderful community, great people, but characters. And I was reminded that it must be the season of the famous construction bonds build, or as we used to call it at home, the destruction bonds build. Let's just say in the day, people took their fun to levels you couldn't today. Thankfully, nobody was hurt, just the odd tree and parts and pieces. People out there will know what I mean, but fond memories of that time of year. My mother doesn't, but I do. All right. With that little tease, I'm going to go to uh, Brian, who is on line one. And and Brian, uh, you want to talk about mass shootings and gun laws, and God, we're back here again. It seems like we never leave it, unfortunately, because of Kansas City this week. Okay. Good morning, Tim. How are you? I'm good, sir. How are you? Very good. I've been following in a long, long time. Uh, I've got just two things I really want to talk about. The first thing is about what happened in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. And Tim, it's the same, same thing, you know. These people, they get guns. We're told they have to need them because they're, they're hunters and they're hunting people. Uh, what happened? I don't know what happened in Kansas City. They arrested some young people. I don't know what they got to do. But the story is the same, Tim. You got uh, a report on CNN, and someone's at the scene, and they're interviewing some people who may have seen the shooters and stuff like that. And then you got the uh, the Republican politicians coming on television, offering their prayers and their thoughts. Well, Tim, my reading is out of that, but nothing gets on my nerves most than these American conservative politicians offering their prayers and their thoughts. Now, Tim, I'm willing to admit that every one of your listeners, including yourself, are better Christians than I'll ever be. So I'm not trying to give a sermon to these people this morning, but I tell you what, for my speaking to people, they usually turn to God when they have situations where they have no control over. Your loved one, they have a cancer, they're dying, they're praying to God for a miracle. Your loved one may be in a car accident and they're on life support and you don't know what's going to happen. They have no control over it. Well, I think if I were God and God, you better be glad I'm not. I think God would say to those people, 
pray to me for things you have no control over. It says to these Republicans in the states and the conservatives in this country, pray to me when you when you when you have faced problems that you really have no control over. See, Republicans in the states got all the control control they need. They can have background checks. They can make sure that teenagers don't get their hands on AR-15 rifles. They can make sure that people coming out of mental institutions can't buy guns. So stop this prayers and thoughts and do something about it. Let let me just get in there for a second, Brian. Yeah. Uh, and I I think it was was it Obama after he was president. It was it was somebody who just took that very point you made and said enough with the thoughts and prayers. That 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 you know that's nice, but that's not doing anything. Just so people understand in Kansas City, so we get the, the, the what we yeah. know out so far. Twenty people shot. Uh, wounded more than 20 people, one person killed, half the people shot were children. So far, according to CNN, two, there are two teenagers in custody. Uh, the shooting, according to police sources, as reported by CNN, stemmed from a dispute between several people, and preliminary investigation findings have shown that there is no nexus to terrorism and homegrown violent extremism. The, the, the latter part is nice to know, but uh, as you say, the reality is that it, look, it's, certainly there's an issue with um, the political influence of the National Rifle Association and, and others in the United States. There's a cultural challenge in the United States why they don't amend their constitution that in this day and age the right to spare arms is still a constitutional right in the U.S. It makes no sense. This shooting in Kansas City, as I understand it, happened on the anniversary of that terrible um, mass shooting in Parkland, uh, Parkland, Florida, I believe, or Parkland, Texas, where uh, 17 people People were killed. I mean, it's it's almost there are daily shootings in the United States of, of this magnitude, and there's so much that has to change. And good for you for calling it out. What else did you did you want to add? I don't want yeah. to diminish. Go uh, ahead. A couple of comments ago, you interviewed a gentleman who spoke about the LGBT problems. Yes. I uh, I taught in Saskatchewan for 31 years, Tim, and. Uh, I was there when the Saskatchewan party was born mm-hmm. after Grant Devine, and you, you may know Grant That's Devine. That whole fallout, yes, yeah. After yep. he lost the election and half his cabinet ended up in prison. And uh, I, in my teaching in 31 years, I had gay students, I had lesbian students, and the last thing I would want to see is any of them been abused. They were good, they were kind kids, they treated me very, very well, uh, and I feel for them. And I did some research way back 31 years ago, and I found that the number of gay teenagers, the number of gay teenagers who kill themselves is way more than the number of kids who are not gay. And I would believe it's probably the same thing today. And it's because they listen now to CNN and others and hear the jury followers of this world condemn them. And they're finding their quickest way out. So thank you for interviewing that gentleman. I taught many, many students who were LGBTQ members. And I always feel for them. And I always wonder how many of them are still alive. 
And I'd like to thank you. I think that was a good uh, conversation. I think people who have never met a gay person should, and they find that, you know, they're, they're, not, they're good people. And uh, the students always treated me very, very well. I had no problems, and they were very kind. Well, thank you, Brian. And I think uh, the stats are still very similar. The the debate, the concern that people have about some of the trans rights policies that different governments are bringing in is you're going to um, cause more trauma and more stress among people who are dealing with their identity and going through that journey. So important to talk about it. All right. I can give you 30 seconds for anything else. Otherwise, I got to go to the news. Well, it's good talking to you, Tim. Keep up, keep up the good work. You, uh, you got your hands. You got your, you got your feelings and the pulse of what people are thinking. I think you're one person who can uh, ta- uh, bring out the message of uh, treat people better. Put away your guns. You don't need AR-15s. And for God's sake, people like me should never have guns. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's very kind of you. I think you've done an excellent job yourself, Brian. You have a good day. Thanks for calling. Good morning. Take care. All right. Uh, time for a break here on VOCM's Open Line. Time for news. When we come back, Dr. Pat Parfrey, we're going to talk about the Health Court NL and uh, see where we are in terms of an update. They have a number of events happening next week. Well, they will be doing some updating. So we'll hear from Dr. Parfrey after this. You're listening to a rebroadcast of VOCM Open Line. Have your say by calling 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. And listen live weekday mornings at 9 a.m. Well, if it's not affordability or accountability, it's healthcare that uh, rightly is driving a lot of public interest these days and driving news stories as we see tales here in Ottawa, for example, waiting to see if there's going to be a pharmacare deal between the uh, federal liberals and the, the, the New Democrats. One of the things that's happened in Newfoundland and Labrador over the last number of years is there's been a transformation initiative. Uh, Quality of Care Newfoundland this week is hosting an update uh, called Health Newfoundland and Labrador, a checkpoint. It's a public meeting, and one of the speakers will be uh, Dr. Pat Parfrey, who, of course, is the Deputy Minister of Health Transformation. Now, I'm just going to say this as I always do. I've known Pat for a long time, so I'm going to call him Pat and not Dr. Parfrey, not because I lack respect. Pat, how are you today? I'm good, Timmy, and I'll call you Timmy because I've called you that for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, and then we'll, we'll conduct ourselves accordingly. Now, I, I, I don't well, well, I do want you to share what you're going to say on Tuesday as best you can. So you've got this update coming. It's a public event, which I think is very important, and I know certainly in, in both your current role and previous roles, you've always been determined to make sure that there's as much transparency as possible so people can understand and grasp and have an input as to what change is coming and what change they would like. So what can you tell us now, Pat, uh, before the event on Tuesday about how things are going? What is the checkpoint report? Well, I think it's it's important for people to understand uh, what's actually happened in terms of the health accord and also to understand my role because normally deputy ministers don't go into the public arena to comment on what's, what government are actually doing. But the event that Quality of Care and L are trying to organise or are, are organising involves three people. It involves Sister Elizabeth Davis, who was the co-chair with me, mm-hmm. 
to introduce what the plan intended. And then I'm going to speak about where we, where we are around policy development and actions undertaken on the road to changing culture as it, as it pertains to the social terms of health. And then David Diamond, who is the CEO of NL Health Services, is going to talk about the uh, the policies and actions that have been undertaken on the healthcare side. And then I'm going to talk again about the important things that are necessary to facilitate change, like a health information system and an ambulance system and a learning health and social system. All these things are things that are necessary to allow us to change our health outcomes. So the the we're we're hoping to present over one hour a very factual uh, piece of information, a very factual presentation about where we stand with the fifty nine calls to action that were recommended in the health accord. And how- Public engagement, how important has it been so far? I know that uh, when you and Sister Elizabeth ran the task force, you did a lot of meetings around the province. You spent a lot of time engaging with people. How important does it still remain uh, as you try and transform the healthcare system? Well, I think that the change management process that's necessary for the degree of change that was recommended is really substantial and that the uh, the engagement with the public is equally important um, for them to understand that we can't get changed instantly, uh, that we are we have problems in our healthcare system representative of what's happening all across Canada, and, that, and to understand what actions are being put into place to try and uh, improve improve health care and improve the social terms of health. Um, the the minister and people and other people that go on these medical action updates, uh, there are various uh, subject matter experts go on with them. So he tries to keep the public in, uh, informed about what's happening, and so does the premier, um, and and obviously the opposition parties as well uh, try to, uh, to try to ensure that action is taken on the, the on the health accord. So I think that. There's been a fair a fair amount of um, request from various people say we really like to know where we stand. 18 months after the the implementation plan went in, about where we stand in the action cycle. And by the action cycle, I'm talking about mm-hmm. the policy development on these various types of actions and the implementation of these actions and where we stand in these actions. And whether is it is it too early to think that we might feel some difference? It's very early. And so the amount, of, amount that you might feel in the ground is actually probably relatively small. But there are things that one should be able to feel on the ground as being an indication that we're trying to, that uh, that things are improving my words not yours here but watching health transformation in newfoundland and labrador and and across the country uh as i get to do not at, at your level but just at a level um high enough that i can see some movement but it does seem uh, that you know real transformation is going to take time it's going to take you know potentially a decade or longer uh without putting you in a difficult spot appreciating again you're not a politician but a government official does are you sensing the public gets whether it's a decade two decades that a real change is going to take real time well i, I think that the 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 basic tenor uh, across the country is is that 
uh, we do have to have what's called upstream approaches to preventing mm-hmm. bad health outcomes. And by that is meant that we do have to put efforts into uh, the social terms of health around poverty and food insecurity and housing and inclusion and all those types of things. And the impact of the climate emergency, they're more important than our, than our healthcare, the way our healthcare system works. But it's totally understandable that when people have to spend a long time in an emergency room or that they they don't have access to a family doctor, that things that are related to the healthcare system are front of mind. Um, and I think that there's a fairly universal uh, feeling across Canada that we do have to be able to improve our access to our healthcare system and improve the way we that we deliver across the whole country. Yeah, and you're certainly seeing a, a hot debate here in Ontario right now, and you have some of this in Newfoundland and Labrador, is, of course, about, uh, which is already in the system, having more private delivery of publicly funded services. Won't haul you into that. That wouldn't be fair today to do that to you or, or anybody else at, at, at the moment. But uh, So if people go on, when, on Tuesday night, they're going to get this comprehensive report. There'll be the opportunity for questions, I assume. How will this continue? Will there be regular updates? Will there be regular engagement with the public? I, 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 I think the other piece of that of Tuesday night is not only is there the public uh, presentation of where we stand in these various actions, a kind of a factual accounting, um, nothing more than that, um, and, uh, and and the fact that there that's that it's going virtual and that the registration for virtual is higher than the registration for on site, so to speak, is is important. I think my recommendation will be uh, having evaluated how this goes, etc. Uh, would be that we, there should be regular updates. And one of the things we've recommended is uh, an, an NL Health Quality Council, which would have recommend which would have responsibility for reporting to the public on health-related matters and social determinants of health matters, and would have responsibility for making these things understandable to the public and making and what we call health literacy, I suppose. But the belief that transparency is going to be the mother of change is probably a, a, a good, a good uh, understanding. Last question for you. Um, recently been doing a lot of work in the field of impact measurement, which is obviously something you're familiar with and, and looking to track here. There's a variety of different models. It's not like accounting. It's not IFRS or GAP or the various models that exist to um, look straight up at how the books are balanced and how cash flow works. Have you come forward with impact measurements that you're comfortable with that can legitimately grade the progress or lack thereof of this initiative? Well, I, we, we have um, done a lot of work on uh, a framework for, uh, for uh, 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 um, evaluating quality of life and the domains of quality of life that, that, are, that are available. There's a federal initiative around this. And the domains that they have are uh, social, um, um, environmental, uh, mm-hmm. prosperity, health, 
um, and and uh, public public health and safety, so though, or governance, I suppose, might be a better one. And within the within that framework, there's multiple um, metrics that evaluate how well we are doing on components of these, and they're available for us to compare across the country. And okay. it's feasible for us to use that data to work out, work out how to how to go forward. But the key thing is. Is what 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 is our what is our really what's our objective? Yeah. And our life expectancy is lower than the rest of Canada, and clearly we would like to be able to improve that by improving those that life expectancy, bringing it up to the Canadian average. But there's more to it than that. There's more. There is also what is the quality of life really really like? Do we really feel good life satisfaction? And the interesting thing is that Newfoundlanders and Labradorians have the highest ranking. For that quality of life indicator, so there, it, it's a it, the, the framework of evaluating the impact of what we're trying to do needs to be nuanced, and and it and it is relatively complicated, but there is a framework by which we can go forward and examine our impacts. And I did, I, I did mislead. One last question, and I'll let you go. I know you're a busy guy. And, and it is, you've worked in the Newfoundland and Labrador healthcare system for, for decades. How do you personally feel? I, you sound as committed as ever to transformation. Do you feel like things are moving in the right direction? Oh, I, uh, I'm absolutely certain of it. I, I mean, I think that you could, you could uh, to describe what's going on on the social side and the health side, um, you could you could say there are twenty thirty silos of things from seniors care to to community care to the ambulance system to the health information system to poverty reduction and and, and, and they're all in silos and they're not integrated and the the capacity to create that bridge I suppose is the image we're using that bridge to better health outcomes depends on having a strong foundation of of an integrated foundation of those things that affect. Or, or the social determinants of health, and then a, a strong pillar around a health system that's balanced across the acute side and the and the community side and the long-term care side, and then that bridge to allow all these things to function together. And by that, I'm talking, as I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. an integrated ambulance system, a health information system, a learning health, a le- an approach to uh, change that depends on data, uh, you know, matching best practice mm-hmm. or actual practice with best practice, intergovernance, proper governance. And I suppose I should really mention that the, another piece, of course, is our linkage with the federal government. And the health accord was used in our in our discussions with the federal government because we're the one province that had a plan. And we were able mm-hmm. to provide this document that had our plan that we were going to go forward for the next five years and had a big influence in facilitating um, health transfers to try and help us uh, um, fund what we needed to do. All right. We'll leave it there. Uh, we'll look forward to Tuesday. Good to talk to you, my friend, and uh, good luck on Tuesday. Thanks very much, Tim. Bye. Okay. That was Dr. Pat Parfrey, the Deputy Minister of Health Transformation. And again, we will be watching the uh, presentation at Quality Newfoundland uh, on Tuesday evening. Time for a break here on VOCM. Back with more of your calls after that. Welcome back to Open Line. Good conversation there with uh, Dr. Parfrey on health transformation. Encourage you to check that out next week as uh, was noted you can uh, you can uh, do that online all right dave where am i going still don't have the text oh i know mark wilson's waiting but we have uh, someone who wants to come on with a public service and who sorry oh 
Corey, sorry, Corey, we're having a little breakdown on our end. My bad. Corey, come on and give save us, Corey. No worries. <laughs> uh, no worries. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you perfectly. What's going on, Corey? Excellent. excellent. I just wanted to call in just uh, quickly because I just left my uh, my home out in paradise and uh, just wanted to put a, some extra caution out because uh, uh, while it's already a bit uh, tricky driving around uh, town today with the, with the narrow streets, um, uh, further complicating things uh, are traffic lights. Uh, I've noticed uh, in the space of five minutes, uh, vehicles running red lights on uh, three different sets of traffic lights because with all the blowing snow we've had, the lights are actually filled up with snow. So it's hard to see and some places uh, whether the lights red or green so just wanted to make that comment and then you know for drivers to to take an extra caution when you're approaching someone who's coming at you in a perpendicular direction uh, to make sure that the light is actually red or green uh, well, that was wor- that was, and I'm not being I'm not being sarcastic or an arse here. That was worth waiting for, uh, Corey. Thank you. It's true. You got to be careful while you're out there. It's uh, dangerous this time of year when you're uh, when those snowdrifts are up and the wind's blowing. Thank you for making the call, Corey. Indeed. Thank you. All right. Take care. Take care. Uh, have a good day. All right, Mark Wilson, housing advocate. How are you? You're uh, you're on the program. Good to speak to you again. Hey, Tim. How's it going today? I I am good. Boy, you must be busy Um, trying to address an avalanche of ideas, sometimes money, sometimes screw ups. Uh, I mean, how 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 is it going, Mark, on the housing advocacy (laughs) front? I mean, it's not an easy job, to be honest. It's not a job. I'll be honest as well, Tim. It's, you know, I do all this as a volunteer. Of course. Uh, I, don't, I don't take any money. Uh, um, we're fundraising to try to bring down uh, tiny shelters, which are actually built in Cambridge, Ontario, um, to keep people warm and safe and give them a locked door that they can be behind. So that's sort of my main goal right now is to try to continue that fundraiser, and we're getting closer. Um, We'll bring that down, and we'll tour it around and show people what it is, and I think it's important. I mean, you've dealt with governments and uh, municipalities and um, at at many levels, really, Tim. You know what it's like. You've got to put these things in front of people for them to understand how it works and what it would what it would do to change the equation on on how we approach homelessness how we approach shelters um but uh i guess you know uh my main reason for calling in was to speak a little bit about the federal housing advocates report that came out on encampments the other day Encampments yes, and, and are, their encampments are not just a, as you alluded to, not just a challenge in St. John's. They're a challenge all over the country right now. And I say challenge as in uh, it, it is obviously the people who have taken refuge in there are challenged to find uh, homes and comfort and safety. Governments are challenged to find policies that work for them, uh, pro, you know, provincial, federal. It, it is a multi-layered initiative. Uh, issue, I should say, that nobody seems to have a clear answer for, and that's probably not surprising. Anyway, with that preamble, sorry, Mark, I give it back to you. Yeah, no problem. No, it's it's good to know also, like with you being in Ottawa, it's probably good to, to know how things are happening elsewhere. Um, I tuned in yesterday to a cross-country discussion on encampments, mm-hmm. um, and uh, there was some there was was definitely some different opinions that came out um but 
ultimately, um, like the federal housing advocate has stated in her report, um, we need to be able to provide the necessities of life and services to folks um, to provide both for their physical and their mental health. So that includes water, food, sanitation, heating and cooling, accessibility, healthcare and harm reduction. And, and therein lies the challenge, Tim. How do you do that when people are in tents right now? Yeah. Um, so, you know, in, in I guess what, what I wanted to sort of bring to the attention of folks is that there are people still at Tent City at the Colonial Building. A lot of people think that through the myriad of announcements that has has gone and the creation of a, of a task force, Premier's task force, that people are not there anymore. But I need the public to know that people are there. What, what I learned yesterday and what I've learned in my research from various encampments in Ontario, specifically like Kitchener and Waterloo area, where there are two very different encampments that are, I guess I would say like the 2.0 and 3.0 version of Tent City, where people are living in, uh, in structures that are insulated and heated and they have, they've got electricity, they've got access to central buildings that provide supports for them, uh, whether it's supports to get into you know, what we would call a real home, uh, or whether it's supports to for their for mental health or for addiction services or just general health care, they're providing these services on the on, in, on the site like in place, um, and they're doing it very efficiently, um, and they're doing it very inexpensively. Um, so I, I want people to know that there are still people there at Ten City. Um, I want people to know also that the the reason that, at least this is my opinion, Tim, you, you feel free to jump in. I think the reason that these encampments are popping up is partially the cost of living, mm-hmm. partially just the you know the the fact that rents have gone up everywhere, um, and they're squeezing people out. Not not just folks with addictions and mental health issues. Yeah, they're, they're squeezing people out that are you know have lost their job or just fallen on hard times yeah and you know mark that seems to be like the reportage from different parts of the country uh although the fact i can't disagree with you i think those are key factors in in all of this and uh those are issues that people are trying to address but uh, when you're in a difficult circumstance sometimes you don't have a choice and you do what you do and it causes tensions and the like anyway i before i can give you 30 seconds to sum up because i gotta go to news is there yeah. anything else you'd like to add well, the- the most important thing to know is that we 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 were told there was you know we saw about a dozen people standing in front of the premier announcing a task force on homelessness, and almost nothing has been done. It's what is that? Seventy eight days ago, November thirtieth is when they announced that. Uh, we've had over fifty days. I think about fifty three days since Christmas. Uh, John Abbott had said we're going to get them out of there before Christmas, and it has not been done. So along with the Federal Advocates Report, we need to see governments, all levels of government, work together. And I'm happy that, you know, I think that they can work with community on that. But we need to send a message to them. And I urge folks to contact their representatives and tell them enough is enough. We've got to, we've got to solve this issue. 
All right. Well said, Mark. Uh, we'll leave it there. Thank you. Thanks, Keep Tim. up your, your strong work. Uh, these are problems we have to get at. Uh, good to talk to you today. Good to talk to you. Have a great day. All right. That was housing advocate Mark uh, Mark Wilson. Time for quick news here on VOCM. When we come back, uh, Michael Bartlett, the CEO of Basketball Canada. They're shooting the lights out these days, hitting more three-pointers than Steph Curry, both uh, men's and women's teams going to the Olympics. We'll talk about that and some challenges in the sports sector around funding. Seems to be a theme of this program today. A lot of people needing to look at how they're resourced. Back with uh, Mike Bartlett right after the news here on VOCM. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. You gotta love Brian. I've never heard that. Urban explorers, vandals, and vermin. Well, I don't think our next guest fits into any of those categories, although he is on his way to Indiana for the NBA All-Star Game, and lucky him. Uh, happy to welcome the uh, CEO of Canada Basketball, uh, Michael Bartlett. Uh, how are you doing, Michael? Very well this morning, Tim. Thanks for having me. So you can confirm you're not an urban explorer of vandal or vermin, just so that's clear with the audience, none of the above? No, I just pulled over on I-75. That's that's all for me at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, all from you. Uh, l- let's um, let's talk a little bit about Paris 24 because for the first time in a long time, going to the Canadian uh, going to the uh, Olympics in Paris starting in late July are both Canada's men's and women's basketball team. You're still relatively new as the CEO. This has got to be great for basketball, and you must be exceedingly pleased as well yeah we certainly are it's um it's a long time coming uh, it's an expectation that we have of ourselves and of our program and quite frankly i think the same expectation that canada has for us as well first time since 2000 uh, only the fourth time in history um, that both the men's and women's program have uh, punched their ticket for the same olympics so not only are we excited about the qualification uh, you know looking at the talent that we have looking at the way that we stack up against international competition uh, this should be a summer that Canadians uh, get a chance to cheer for us in meaningful games. Um, our expectation is that we compete for medals and uh, you know make this the Summer Olympics of basketball. How excited do the players get about the Olympics, uh, Michael? I mean, you you see that I've seen, I think we've all seen, any of us who are sports fans, the multiple documentaries on the American Dream Team and what it seems to mean to American athletes. I assume for our players, the dream is as big and as prestigious. And many of our star NBA players are giving their time to to do this because they want to win those medals and our WNBA players too. So how is it for the players? Yeah, it's the pride runs deep, you know, and, you know, what we've been focused on recently as well is making sure that we match and give them a reason to be as proud of the program as they are uh, of their country. You know, we have examples, I think, almost every night where an NBA mm-hmm. Canadian athlete is talking about being proud of representing his country. Um, you know, we've got athletes that weren't in the mix a few years ago uh, when we put our core roster strategy together that are now like beating down the door saying I really hope I get a shot to play in Paris and then you've got Canada and perhaps even the world's best player Shea Gilgis-Alexander right now mm-hmm. talking about his pride and being really the, the lead dog uh, in the fight for us when it came to getting commitments for athletes he's the first one to put up his hand and when your best player is the most committed um, it transcends and then you know we, we qualified not really the way we drew it up 
this past weekend in Hungary for the women's program, and Natalia Chanwa, our team captain and now four-time Olympian, stood up. She's got a you know a ten-month-old son, uh, hmm. and said, you know, when I had Maverick, I was asked, you know, are you going to work to come back, you know, and come back to the WNBA? She's like, no, I'm going to work to come back to play for Canada in the Olympics. That's my focus. I want my son to see that his mom uh, is an Olympian. And when you hear stories like that, uh, it just makes you realize that we've built uh, a program that the athletes are proud of, um, and we owe them that uh, same resourcing. We owe them that same opportunity to make their country proud while they're doing it. Yeah, resourcing is where I want to go now, and we're going to hear more about that. You're, of course, the the CEO of Canada Basketball, one of the uh, well-known national sports organizations in Canada. There's been concern among the national sports organizations, uh, uh, also with the Canadian Olympic Committee and other sports bodies in the country, that there's been a funding gap that, that hasn't been addressed. And there's a hope that the federal government, navigating all the other challenges that they're dealing with, and we've talked a lot about them today, Day, whether it be housing affordability, whether it be health care, uh, whether it be security issues. There's a hope, though, in the in the national sports organizations, in the Canadian sporting community, that we're going potentially to see the federal government do a little bit of reinvestment because it hasn't done it in a long time. Why is that important, Michael? And and what are you hoping you'll see from the federal government as we approach the federal budget? Yeah, well, I certainly, as all sport leaders in this country, understand that um, and there are many issues that the government is being asked to concentrate on and fund solutions for. Um, what we're asking for, like, listen, the, the funding for national sport organizations has been flat since 2005, flat, not mm-hmm. a little bit of inflation increase every year, flat since 2005. That actually represents this year about a $109 million shortfall uh, for the entire sector in an Olympic year when the federal government is also going to rely on us and lean in, you know, as politicians often do, um, to be part of the shine that we create for Canada. And if we don't go and win the medals that Canada exists to do because we don't have the resources to pour into that preparation, you know, there'll be inquiries, there'll be, you know, conversations, you know, how when the podium was created a number of years ago, we weren't winning enough medals, and yet, it all of this is this pressure is being downstream on NSOs to do the right thing by the way of competing at the highest level, also do the right thing by way of adopting new and you know in some cases advanced policies to say which are very important foundation when I you know we've been allowed as an organization of basketball be able to monetize ourselves. Mm-hmm. Because, as you pointed out, we're one of the larger and, and more uh, notable NSOs. But you know, even that, we are struggling each year to break even uh, because the sector as a whole, there's only so much money around in brand partnerships and sport partnerships and permanent partnerships to fund what Canada expects us to do. And you know, I feel that the sector in and of itself is at an absolute breaking point. Um, Deloitte is is working with on a study that is being presented to the federal government that will show 90% of the NSOs will be completely 
underwater, financially and operational uh, within two years. That's a story that this government can't fix it all themselves, but we do have to be at the table with government to think about if it's not more money, is it reallocated money? Is it more efficiency in the sports system? What are we doing to make sure that when Canada needs us to give them a reason to cheer that we are in the best position to do so? And aspiration so important. I was just talking before you came on with the uh, Newfoundland Deputy Minister of Health Transformation, uh, who, by the way, also used to be the coach of Canada's national rugby team. He's talking about the social determinants of health and uh, certainly hope and opportunity are part of that. Just so people also understand it, Michael, um, national sports organizations aren't just about national teams and winning medals. So that often is their priority. What is the contribution that you make to the community, to the grassroots. And I say this as a dad sitting here in Ottawa this morning who has a son who goes to the Carlton Ravens basketball camp and loves every minute of it. And there's 60, 70 other kids there who are happy, healthy, engaging. Just if you can, talk about the grassroots and the community for a moment and why that money matters. Yeah, we certainly probably uh, spend more time talking about that do um, as organizations to compete for Canada internationally, just as important are the system alignments that we oversee, the policies, procedures, coaching, your son, my daughter, when they enter a gym to play basketball, are entering, say, head coach, that takes infrastructure throughout the Sorry, you there? Yeah, I was there. If you stand right where we are, we lost you there for a second. You, sorry, I lost you at Safe Sport. That's all right. Keep going. Yeah. So, you know, the downstream of infrastructure from the national sport organizations into community sport takes time, energy, uh, and money as well. And what we are doing as a, as a sport, what all my counterparts and the other sport organizations across this country is we're not just focusing on here, the pyramid, the high elite athlete. We are working on the grassroots um, health and infrastructure of our sports as well. And we also know the best way to generate interest in the sport is, you know, when the Olympic lights are on or when World Cup lights mm-hmm. are on to shine. And I know, you know, they call it the, the you know, the Vince Carter effect back in the day. There's probably a Raptors championship effect. When we go to the Olympics and job when other sports go to the olympics and do their job um, a son or daughter in a household somewhere in canada is going out to their driveway or to their local pool or to their track to replicate what they just saw and they're asking mom and dad to put me in sport putting you know there is ream and pages of data that shows the health benefits of being an individual and team sport and the preventative medicine impact that that has in a country as well. So we know that good sport activity is good for the country. We believe that we are uh, inspiring and instigating good sport activity at the community level, but then we're also protecting the community level with the infrastructure policies and procedures and coaching certification that we, we downstream through communities across the country. Yeah, well said, and obviously in full agreement. I will let you go, Michael, let you get back on your way to Indianapolis. We'll be watching Paris the, this summer. We'll be watching Shea Gilgrass-Alexander this weekend, see if we can steal that all-star MVP. Uh, thanks for the time, and good luck with the funding initiative. It's uh, certainly vital. Thank you very much, Tim. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you. That was Michael Barrett, the CEO of ba- Canada Basketball. Back with more of your calls after this. 
Welcome back. We'll go to you, Tony. How are you? Tony, I don't know I'm what line you're on, but I know you're out there. How are you? Yes, how are you? I'm good, and you? Not bad, thank you. Now, let me guess. You think Justin Trudeau is the greatest prime minister ever. You do not want him to resign, and you've become a liberal. Do I have that right or no? I know. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to go to work for Trudeau. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's just an awful. I mean, every week there's a scandal, but here and now with Daughter General coming out and and right now with uh, she had no proof, uh, at least sixty million dollars, and they won't release the documents or have destroyed them. That she now the RCMP got to go to court in order to get a court order in order to get the rest of the files in order to find out how much money was spent. So yeah, you're talking. I mean, let's just, let's give people. Yeah, no, no. You're let, let's just give people the context, and that's yeah. an important story. So it's that's the, the Arrive Canada app, yeah. which the Conservatives yeah. are now calling the Arrive scam. And as you rightly point out, the Federal Auditor General recently released a report. Uh, it's a little under sixty million. It's like fifty nine point four or something. Uh, she was question fifty nine point four million dollars spending was very questionable. She questioned the approval. She um, the uh, bookkeeping. Uh, I think, if I recall her statements correctly, she also said she'd never seen anything like this in her four years of being in the role. The other thing I would add is um, since there's been more reporting to say that the company involved in this, which just has four people in it, yeah. uh, has had something like $259 million in in uh, in contracts from the federal government. So the RCMP are also now investigating aspects of this. Sorry, Tony, wanted to give the context. You keep yes. going. No, that's good. That's good. But anyway, yes, and now, I mean, for they won't release the files, and Trudeau will not release them, even though he, he can get them. They won't release them. And that $259 million that they gave out to GC Stratus uh, for Strategy, work, and yeah. some was for IT work, millions of dollars that was give, gave to them, and they don't even do IT work. So I mean, this is a yeah. That, that's another like that. important point. They uh, the lie they contracted out a lot of the work, and they would took take a fee for facilitating the contract. Keep going. Yeah, and uh, that, that's what gets me. And then Trudeau, he can have any, and he turned around saying, "Well, it was an investigation." No, he got he knows what it is. Since two, uh, two weeks after he got elected, they this company started collecting millions of dollars, and it's up now to almost two hundred and sixty million dollars, and no work done, no IT work done, even though they're supposed to be doing IT work so with this is a, a company now who's got uh, their office in a in a basement of a cottage with four employees and collect almost 260 million dollars i mean when you got people out there starving to death can't pay, two million dollar two million people lined up at food banks and and yet they're giving away money like this and no accountability for it i mean it's just so much well, the only, going yeah on. no there well there's a lot there and there's two federal government employees that have been suspended though important to point out because i know you'd want to be fair uh, to date yeah. to date the auditor general has found no links to no political connections or links um, we'll see what transpires i think this story is going to keep going got to give you about one more minute what did you, i got to ask you about this what did you think of the environment minister, all the trouble, federal one, he got all the trouble he did talking about no more roads. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, no more roads. I mean, this is so unbelievable. I mean, we're not going to have cars right now. We're going to get bikes and go around. No, we're not gonna well, no you still need pavement roads. for bikes, too, by the yeah. way. But he, to be fair to him, he did clarify and he eventually said he was speaking about one funding project in Quebec. But after he did uh, that, the, uh, the the damage was done. I'll give you 30 seconds. Tony, is Polyev okay. going to win or not? 
Oh, you know, he's, well, he's already got a one way matter call in the election now. But at the same time, now you got the contracts that are down here, the same thing with the Liberal Party here. They're handing no contracts left, right, and center, paying three and four times more than other contracts. I mean, you take up here now, uh, the center, central Newfoundland, that, uh, I mean. This, yeah, I, I don't, you know what? Let's not yeah. go down this path because I don't okay. know about it, so I don't want to get wrong information right. out well, there. Anyway, federal right now, federal government, I mean. Trudeau <laughs> but you're going to keep going. Either. All right, Tony, Tony. Yeah. Good, good to <laughs> talk to you. Later. Bye. I love Tony's persistence. Thank you, everybody. Today, a uh, wonderful show, lots of uh, good conversations, lots of important things going on out there. Stay safe in that snow because you really do have it. We don't have it to the same degree here in Ontario. Uh, have a wonderful weekend. Patty will be back, I believe, on Monday or Tuesday. Uh, thank you. I look forward to the next time we chat. And for now, I'm Tim Powers. This is VOCM's Open Line. Have a great weekend.